Airline Pilot Guy, episode 327. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the APG headquarters studio in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 7th of June, 2018. In today's episode, the unbearable stench of an unwashed man causes an in-flight divert. An American Airlines flight makes an emergency landing after encountering severe hail. Two general aviation incidents, one good, one bad. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, the dead stick. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright lock positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 327 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, the captain for a major legacy carrier based in the United States of America. That's why we call it U.S. Legacy Carrier. And joining me today to help answer all of your great questions, we have... Doctor. From her beautiful lakeside cottage in South Carolina, Doctor. Doctor. Skydiver. Marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Great to be back for another show with you guys. Looking forward to a wonderful show this evening or afternoon. I guess it's kind of earlier in the day than usual for us, but that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Awesome. Glad to see you, Steph. And... Also joining us from his new recording studio outside of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, Steph. Great to be back on the show. What a lovely day it is here. And just for a change, we're starting the show and I'm looking out of my window and the sun is still shining. Unbelievable. It's a good thing, right? Yeah, very good. We should be finished before midnight. I hope so. (laughs) Also joining us, yes, you recognize the music. That's the uh, special music that we have for special guests. And we have our guest crew member today, a former Air Force tanker pilot who now flies for a legacy U.S. airline and the Navy Reserves, a serial entrepreneur and founder of Crew Dog Electronics. His name, Sean Chuplis. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, look forward to talking to you guys. Honored to be on the show. Well, we look forward to talking to you as well. And we're glad that you could join us today. And uh, let's see. Okay. I guess it's time now to tell our singing guy that he can stop. Okay. Thank you. All right. There we go. <laughs> He's just very enthusiastic. Was, you know, he just that was going to go on for about 10 minutes. <laughs> he, he looks a bit offended now the way he's storming off. I know. He's like sulking. <laughs> Sorry. anyway uh, so on a previous episode uh, we were talking about uh, this email that I received from someone who uh, we're talking about Sean right now 
who, uh, in addition to all the things he does as far as flying and everything else, he dabbles in uh, electronics and uh, he created a uh, a product called Stratix. Uh, actually, I guess that's technically the uh, the name of the open source project. Is that right? Yes, uh, Stratix is the open source project, and it's a collaboration between people in the U.S., Europe, uh, overseas. But I, my company is Crew Dog Electronics, and I basically try to make this open source project available for anybody and, and easy to order. So it's you don't have to go and plug a board together and have any knowledge of electronics yourself to do it. Okay, so what is this product we're talking about? So basically, it's a ADS-B receiver, um, very similar to the Stratus 2S. So it'll get uh, weather information, also traffic, uh, GPS. But the major difference is it's based on open source technology. So a bunch of people got together and decided that maybe ADS-B receivers shouldn't cost $1,000. So they went and looked at some existing technology. It's built off something called a Raspberry Pi. Not something you would eat. It's a little $35 computer board. And so they developed some different components to put on there, developed the software. A guy named Ryan up in Canada developed a case for it. And it's this open source project between a couple dozen people. And I, I took some of these pieces, added some parts of my own, and started uh, selling them on Amazon and also on my website. And I'm just try to make this very easy for people. I, I know that when I tried to build this myself, I had to go out there and look at a bunch of forums and a bunch of videos and spend a long time trying to piece it together. So I make it very easy for people to just buy this, open up the kit. I've got like an eight-minute YouTube video on how to screw in the antennas and get you up and running. Yeah, it uh, really is not complicated at all. The way you've uh, put everything together and made it, made it nice and easy to understand. And as you said, it's just a matter of screwing in a couple of antennas and uh, attaching the battery Captain Jeff, it's perfect for people like me because I'm, I probably could figure out how to put all that stuff together, but truth be told, I would not put in the time or energy to actually do it and would probably just fork over the thousand bucks for the commercially available product because that's the easy way to do it for me. But this makes a whole lot more sense. And Sean has been kind enough to send us one, which I've actually been using. And actually, I should have it with me here, but it's in the next room over. I can go grab it. So um, people can take so a look people at it on the video, on the video can see it if you want. Okay. Right yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay. And while she's gone uh, getting the, uh, the unit, um, what, what do you call, I know you work for crew dog, your company, crew dog electronics, Sean, um, do you call this just the Stratix just based on the open source? Yeah. Stratix is the name of the open source project. And like I said, it's a few different people around the country. Um, so my particular company, crew dog electronics, and just like Steph was talking about, I, I spent a long time in my aviation career as an instructor in the Air Force, and then I um, also did a lot of CFI work. So when I got hired by the legacy carrier, I saw how much uh, aviation was changing, and there's all these tools available uh, to kind of like change the way we do things and, and make things a lot safer. So having going from like paper pubs and paper charts to looking at everything on an iPad and now having like live weather and live traffic is a total game changer for safety. So the reason I got started on all this is I wanted to build one for myself. And I saw how difficult it was. And then I built it and a couple of buddies from the squadron were like, hey, you built that. Um, how about I give you a little bit of money, just build one for me. So for me, the, the thing that really kind of drives me is I, I hear stories every day from people that are using these devices. You know, any, anyone from people doing har uh, Hurricane Harvey relief efforts, uh, bush pilots up in Alaska, there's some guys at the Houston Life Flight um, that are using it. And I just hear them tell me about how much safer this makes them and, and how appreciative they are that this is at a price point they could afford. So that really keeps me going. I'm just trying to 
get back to the general aviation world a little bit and make everybody fly a little bit safer. Okay. Uh, in the chat room, uh, our main man, Micah, was asking if this is ADSB in and out. And um, it's just ADSB in, correct? Correct. correct. It's receive only. And ADSB okay. out is the 2020 mandate. And that's a much more complicated uh, kind of problem to solve. And, and you won't see anything. There is a solution from EU Avionics for ADSB out that's around the $2,000 price point. But I think that's the cheapest one out there right now. And that's. Pretty cheap compared to some of the professionally installed, um, you know, what do you call it? Uh, legacy avionics manufacturers price tags for those things, right? Are they, yeah. are they around 5000 and up? Yeah, if you're looking around $5,000 and up. Yeah. And that's, as you said, a mandate by the FAA that all aircraft tra uh, flying in all airspace, or is it just uh, class B and above uh, for uh, 2020, that uh, I have mandate? To look it up. I believe just class b but i um there, i know there there have some more gradual changes coming in as well okay and just to be clear again uh for those of you listening who perhaps are just aviation and not just who are aviation enthusiasts and have really no idea what we're talking about when we're talking about adsb uh in and what that is and what this device does and how does it you know, what is, what do we connect it to? I mean, if you just use the device and turn it on, it's not going to do you any good, right? You have to tap into the built-in Wi-Fi in this thing or, or is it uh, Bluetooth? It's a Wi-Fi and that's a wi great point. It really is just kind of like a sensor platform. So it has a built-in GPS, it gets in weather information and it also receives traffic information. And what it does is it broadcasts that information over Wi-Fi. And the great thing about it being open source is unlike the, the first products that came online, like the Stratus, the Stratus was uh, built with a company that partnered with ForeFlight, so it would only work with ForeFlight. And the great thing about this product is it's open source, so it works with all the major EFBs. So you can use ForeFlight, WingX, iFly, FlyQ. And some of the things I'm seeing now is there's actually people building applications on top of it. So uh, there's a, a gentleman uh, building an a application called Fly with Skyline. And basically what it is, it's an augmented reality app you can put on your phone. It uses a Stratix for the sensors, and it's kind of like a heads-up display. It'll give you all the things you have on a HUD with airspeed, altitude, and also pointers for the traffic. So you have visual indications of where the traffic, and it's using your iPad's camera to do an augmented reality overlay and uses a Stratix for its attitude information, the traffic information, and the weather. So it's really cool that because this architecture is open and other people can see the source code, it allows other people to build applications on top of it. Okay. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so ForeFlight, again, uh, for those of you not familiar with what we're talking about, is an app that you can put on, well, I guess you could put on your phone, but most people use uh, their tablets. Is it is ForeFlight iOS, iOS only, or is that... Uh, I believe ForeFlight iOS only. I, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I only have iOS devices, so I, I can never remember if it's available for other uh, platforms or not, but definitely any iOS device will run it. I use it both on my phone and my iPad. And what does it do for you, Steph, if you're a pilot um, or non-pilot in an airplane? What, what does that do? What does ForeFlight uh, not do is a better question. <laughs> um, <laughs> ForeFlight does everything. So it's got all of your, uh, any uh, aviation-related map you want. So you can pull up um, just a sectional chart. You can pull up your IFR low charts, high charts. It's got, um, and all this is subscription-based, I should add. So you pay um, generally a yearly fee. I think it can be broken up differently. It's and not, that's just for ForeFlight because there's some other um, yes. apps out there like ForeFlight, maybe that don't do quite as much, but are not 
subscription based and some are actually free. Yeah, correct. This one will pull in all of your weather data, your radar, your you can basically go in and get all of your briefing information. You can get, uh, you know, it's got all of your procedures, your approach charts, your, uh, I don't know, just, just everything is in here. So um, you can do your flight planning on it. You can actually submit your flight plan through ForeFlight. They'll send it off to the FAA for you. So that way when you, you know, you've put in your flight plan, what you want to do, and then you call up to get your clearance and they've already got it. Um, it just makes things very, very simple. So, so uh, Steph, uh, since we um, have you on the video right now, you want to hold up the Stratix unit, the product in here, Crew Dog so, Electronics, and maybe Sean can help me say what all the different components are. Ooh, sorry, sure, So basically, easy enough. This is battery to power everything, and it works simply enough. Once you plug in the battery to the unit, it just turns on and it's good to go. You have to give it a few seconds for the, um, I guess, for everything to turn on. So this is the Raspberry Pi. Or something like that. that you the were Raspberry Pi is the board inside. Inside it has of it, a couple correct. little chips. It's got a GPS chip inside, a couple radio receivers, and also an attitude chip, so it can tell you up, down, left, right, and give you inertial movements. Yeah. So, and then your antenna here on the top, which do not come assembled to it, but the antenna are labeled as are the ports where they go in. So, easy and enough to put together. All the labeling and everything. Yeah, it's it's really simple to to use. And then some suction cups on the back. So all you do is. Stick it to the window so you can get good reception through the antenna. And as Sean said, it connects through Wi-Fi to your device. And it works. I mean, I only use ForeFlight, so I can't speak to the other um, um, electronic flight, belt bag, flight bag um, programs out there. But it's pretty seamless integration. You just go to your devices that it can connect to, and it recognized it instantly. I didn't have to do any additional setup. And the cool thing about, well, you know, it, this is all enhancing safety, um, situational awareness, and all also traffic displayed uh, as well. And kind of our, like our traffic collision avoidance system, uh, TCAS. It, no, I should not. Yeah, traffic collision avoidance system. I didn't say TCAS system. Somebody was pimping <laughs> me down redundant. for that. <laughs> yeah, I thought I had, but I, I didn't. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I've, I've not seen the uh, ADS be the, uh, the, the traffic readout um, in, in use myself. Uh, how does that work out? How does it display? I mean, does it, uh, is it nice having all that information on your Yeah, it's, it's nice tablet? having all of that information. I will say, though, because um, there are a lot of general aviation aircraft out there that are still not ADSB out. They don't show up, so you still have to be cautious. But anyone who is ADSB out will show up. Um, it was, you know, I've used it a couple of times where I've been doing pattern work and there have been people in the pattern with ADSB out um, equipped in their aircraft. And that's really nice to see what they're doing in the pattern, too, especially when one of them, I think, was very clearly a student and um, was making good radio calls and doing everything they were supposed to. But I think they were having a hard time knowing where we were in the pattern. That was just a lot for their level of situational awareness that they could manage. So it was nice for me to be able to not only have the visual reference, but then keep track of it on the iPad as well. So, And then the other day I was out flying and there was a guy in the, I don't know what he was flying. I was a little too far away to see, but I was watching him do laps in the pattern as I was coming back into the, to the local airport. And he wasn't talking on the radio and he did not show up on ADSV out. So um, I don't think he had any actual <laughs> stuff to work with <laughs> so but okay and uh lane is helping us out our brain our oh yeah i was room. gonna add that in too but thanks lane for yeah um, the uh 
year 2020 rule for ADSB is class A, B, and C. And the reason for that is because it's required in areas where mode C transponders are required. So that's class A, class B, and class C. So very cool. I've got uh, well, a question, you, if I may. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I'm just curious, Sean. Uh, but first of all, uh, brilliant uh, that you're uh, undercutting and providing something that uh, the G- average GA pilot will be able to use um, very effectively. So I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, being an open source, though, and using something as simple as a Raspberry Pi, uh, and considering it's also got a Wi-Fi link, how secure uh, would that be against hacking? Well, if you have a, a MIG, you know, at your six o'clock hacking your Wi-Fi, you might have to worry about that. But the thing is, it's Wi-Fi, right? So it's it's bounded by um, space. Like somebody has to be pretty close to you spatially to actually get on this network. So in order for someone to interrupt it, they'd have to be either blocking a Wi-Fi signal or flying on your wing, basically, to to get on the Wi-Fi network, which actually I've seen some pictures of people doing. They're sharing the connection from their Wi-Fi device and kind of flying in formation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because it's only local to your cockpit, there's no one. Someone would have to be basically beaming Wi-Fi at your plane. And if that's happening, I think you've got some other bigger problems to worry about. Now, look, I've seen that. I saw this show. <laughs> A couple of years ago, I think it's called Scorpion, where they connected an Ethernet cable from an airplane to somebody driving a convertible car down the runway so that they could download um, a file. Because otherwise, everybody heading to the West Coast of the United States was going to crash because the towers weren't operating. Interesting. Yeah. So there you go. There's there's evidence right there. (laughs) Proof. That, that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. <laughs> and I've seen a lot of like, uh, ridiculous I, I things. You know, some. <laughs> and uh, what type of weather information can it provide? Does it provide a radar picture or is it just TAFs and, uh, and yeah, actuals, that sort of thing? So it's actually, um, this is all, ADSB is actually a, an FAA funded program. So that's kind of why I feel very strongly about this. I feel like as an FAA program, it's using taxpayer dollars, and this is something that we should all have access to. So the ADSB information that's broadcast out gives you NEXRAD radar. You can download TAFs and METARs, which I found really useful because when I started using this, I was a CFII uh, out in Hawaii. So I'm flying between islands you know, with new students doing instrument or um, getting their private ticket. And so knowing the weather when you're coming into Honolulu is definitely a good thing because if that airport's not open, you're, you're going back to another island and, and there's only water in between. So having up-to-date live weather information was very relevant for me. And the FAA is actually adding on a new layer of information. They're adding on um, flight level winds and lightning and a few other things. It's supposed to be out late June or July, but that's already coded into the, the Stratix software because you know it's open source and these programmers have already looked at this. So as soon as the EFBs, which are like ForeFlight or iFly, as soon as they incorporate that to display it, you can also get that using this device. So it's really great because if you you can also get this using um, like Sirius or an XM subscription, but it's very pricey. Whereas this ADSB information, you don't need a subscription. The only thing you're paying for is the software that can decode it, and otherwise, the information you're downloading with weather is free. Excellent. That's great. Now we don't normally do this. Uh, normally, our show we do our intro, and then we do news, and then we do feedback. But since we're already talking about the Crew Dog Electronics uh, version of the Stratix um, hardware, um, we did, uh, and this was just out of the blue, just kind of kismet or coincidence. 
from uh, Cosley up in Maryland. Pastor Cosley Joseph writes, Greetings, APG crew, sending my first feedback for 2018. I write to thank you for this wonderful podcast that keeps me connected to aviation. I have the APG syndrome, and it's really bad. It's so bad that when you and Dr. Steph talked about the Stratix ADSB receiver, I went and bought a kit from Amazon and assembled one. It's augmented my plane spotting hobby. Thank you. And now for my question to the rest of the crew, if one could overlook the obvious stares from other passengers, is it against the rules to use a Stratix on a passenger flight? Once again, thanks for the awesome podcast. And so, uh, and before I knew that uh, Sean was going to be on today's show, I answered uh, Cosley and uh, I looked on my airlines, Acme Airlines, um, the uh, our manual, actually it was the, the, the flight attendant's uh, what they call the onboard manual uh, regarding personal electronic devices. And uh, this may vary from airline to airline, but uh, they have a chart. And um, one of the items on the chart that uh, says that can be operated uh, at all times is a global positioning system receiver. And since this is a GPS receiver and I guess more as well. It's not transmitting anything. I would imagine, I told him, that it looks like this would be considered a, a GPS receiver, and uh, so it would be okay. And uh, so that would be my take on this. And then, of course, I said to him, my caveat would be if the flight attendant objected to its use, I wouldn't argue about it because you're just going to get yourself in trouble. You can't win that argument. Yeah, I would agree with you, Jeff. The, the other Acme airline that I fly with um, has similar policies. And like you said, this is a receive only. The only thing that it's transmitting is Wi-Fi signaling. And most planes have Wi-Fi in the cockpit now. So I've actually used mine as a passenger on a few airlines. Got a couple of stairs and I'd just show people what it is. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm a pilot. I'm, I'm testing this out. And, and look, look at all the traffic I'm getting while mm -hmm. here in the air. And then people kind of tend to be a little bit uh, more okay with it after that. Yeah, I would imagine at first they see this thing, this box with a couple of uh, Antenna. rubberized antennas yeah. sticking and a out of it. Attached to it. Sticking, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, yeah. So I could see you might you might get some strange looks, but uh, it should be okay. And uh, I, so I wrote Cosley back and said, "Hey, you know, apps uh, actually, uh, coincidentally, we're going to have Sean on the next show." And uh, I I asked him if there was any question that he might have for Sean. And he, he came back and said, yes, is there a way to boost the 978 signal reception on the ground so we can pick up weather information on the ground? And he adds, otherwise, I'm thoroughly enjoying the Stratix experience. And I read the question. And so this is really designed for people that are flying in the air. So the 978 reception is based on line of sight with the towers. And you can actually look, there's, there's, they're all throughout the U.S., uh, Alaska and down in the Caribbean. So unless you're line of sight with one of the towers, you're going to have a real hard time getting weather information. But a lot of people that are, are plane spotters like him will use this to get traffic information. And I've done this um, in my living room. I can plug it in and I can see airliners flying overhead and, and traffic within you know 10 or 20 miles around me. So unfortunately, if he's not within line of sight of, of one of these towers, um, he's not going to get weather information. But the traffic information is broadcast from the actual plane. So he will be able to pick that up. And I don't know of any way to boost the signal reception that high that you'd be able to receive the weather. But if you live close to like maybe an international airport or something like that, you might get lucky and, and get that 978 reception. Excellent. Stand well, on a hill. Yes. Yeah. Very high mountain. 
go to Denver. <laughs> there you go. Or rebuild your house on a mountain, Cozley. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Um, so it's so so. If somebody were interested, somebody let's say a general aviation pilot listening to the show, and they wanted to learn more about your product, how would they do that? Sure. So I have a website, Crew Dog Electronics. So they can go to crewdogelectronics.com, and I've got a little intro video on there that actually shows me unpacking it and getting it all started up, and it's it's an under a ten minute video. So they can go there. I've also got a Facebook page, um, YouTube. I've done a lot of little videos on YouTube on just little troubleshooting things and other things with ADSB. And I'm also the top selling aviation GPS receiver on Amazon. So any one of those places Woo-hoo. you can go check it out. I know a little of me uh, disrupting the, the aviation GPS market, but pretty exciting. <laughs> and also, you got any uh, uh, bad, oh, go ahead. Sorry. And I'll also be at Oshkosh this year and I'll have some of my uh, pilot friends. We should be selling at Oshkosh. So you can find me there as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. I know that several listening to the show will be at Oshkosh this year. So um, I was asking if you were getting any, um, negative or bad, uh, uh, messages from that company that sells the Stratus. Ah, that's a tough question. <laughs> okay. Well, so we actually, won't talk about it then. <laughs> one positive I will say, I mean, cause obviously I'm taking away some market share from them, Yeah. but they have recently, they did not work with our attitude information. They, their program was not, um, taking the attitude information that we put out. But they've since changed course, and now Four Flight Ten incorporates the attitude information, and it seems that they're they're embracing these third-party receivers. So now they're working with us, which I think is really great. Because at the end of the day, I think everybody just wants us to be able to fly a little bit safer, and so I think they're finally on board with that mission as well. And everybody's kind of playing nice, so it's it's been pretty positive uh, overall. And I was really happy to see that change in their latest software update. And just so everybody has a frame of reference, uh, the the standard off the shelf commercial version of this uh, this hardware is around a thousand dollars. And what does your kit sell for? This one is uh, around a two fifty price point. Okay, so uh, roughly one quarter of the cost of the commercial product. Exactly. Excellent. That's really awesome. Thank you uh, for sharing that with us, Sean, and and uh, and letting us uh, play with. Uh, one of your, uh, how do I put this without having to play this? That's what she said. <laughs> Letting us play with your unit. <laughs> Ooh, so to speak. <laughs> yes. Um, awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, if you, uh, if you want just uh, stay on with us, uh, you can hang out for as long as you can. And uh, we're going to continue with our intro section here, talking about uh, catching up everybody with what we've been doing this past week. And then we'll talk about news, which I, you know, I think you might be interested in adding your two cents on. And uh, so. And I can put in one more plug. I just, um, I'm finishing up at the Naval War College um, and I did my research paper on drones and autonomous warfare and also artificial intelligence. So we want to go down that rabbit hole. I just wrote a 18 page research paper on um, autonomy coming into warfare and, and AI systems and stuff like that. So Ooh. something that will affect our jobs or probably take away our jobs one day. So if we want to go down that rabbit hole, I'm happy to chat about that as well. Okay. Well, we, that might come up on today's show. <laughs> and if not, we'll know who to talk to about it uh, in the future. Sweet. All right. Um, so, well, we'll catch up on uh, Sean. You said you're, uh, gra- are you graduating from the Naval War College anytime soon? Yep. I'm actually graduating uh, at the end of next week and Secretary Mattis will be speaking at my graduation. Should be really interesting to hear the Secretary of Defense speaking. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a great experience. A lot of broad thinking for the military and it's been really interesting to look at some of this future technology like drones and, and AI and 
um, yeah, it's, it's been a real, been a lot of fun, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back in the cockpit and flying full time. Okay, sweet. Uh, Captain Nick, are you still with us here? Yeah, you are. I'm still with um, how have you been doing these uh, past few days between shows? Well, very well. Thank you very much. I have at last completed uh, the required two months uh, away from flying. But unfortunately, it doesn't mean I can get straight back uh, into the cockpit. Um, I had to undergo some blood tests today, and those will have to, uh, the results will have to come back. And then I'll have to see various specialists. That's all going to take a while. Um, so I'm not expecting to get a clearance to fly in the next week or so. Um, so there's a good chance I may not get back into the cockpit until next month, uh, since I have some leave coming up. It <laughs> does seem a bit silly, doesn't it? All this time off and I've got leave coming, but of course- You need a break. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, as for a family holiday, and it would be uh, wrong of me to deny the family that chance uh, by uh, throwing that leave in the bin and cancelling our our bookings so uh, i'll go on holiday and then when i come back uh it'll probably be beginning of uh, july i'll expect to be back flying other than that uh it, life has been uh, pretty good thank you very much indeed enjoying myself and enjoying the uh, time off that's great steph how about you have you been busy this uh this past uh, week? Well, I think as you were going through all my stuff in the intro, I was ticking them off. I think I've actually done everything that you listed this week. You know, when you talk about oh, really? being a skydiver, a marathon runner, I didn't run a full marathon, you know, IPA kind of super. So let's see, last weekend on Saturday, I did do a couple of sky, make a couple of skydives. So that was a lot of fun. Nice to be up with friends. A um, little bit of a different event. It's kind of the, they call it a, Large skydiving events are called boogies. So my local drop zone was hosting its annual boogie, which is a big deal. And they have 400 skydivers from all over the country and the world come in for that. But it's a nice chance to jump with people who do some organizing and um, kind of some teaching along the way. So things that you might not normally do. Um, all of this was stuff that I would normally do anyway, but it was just nice to do it with some more experienced folks. So that was fun. And then on Tuesday, I did a little bit of flying took the 172 out for a couple laps around the pattern, um, used the Stratix. And unfortunately, the people I was flying with in the pattern weren't broadcasting anything. But we do fly. <laughs> I do fly very close to Charlotte Douglas. So I do get all that commercial traffic that shows up there, which is not really any factor for me for where I am and where they are. And then, yep, I've been to the gym. I've done some weight training. I've been, this has been week one of marathon training for fall marathons. So back out running and I've had at least one IPA along the way. So it's been a good At week. least one. I at like that. <laughs> yeah. I've had at least one uh -huh. the last few days myself. I might've had two. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. All right. Excellent. Um, all right. And then myself, I was supposed to be on a four day trip this week coming home this morning, but wasn't feeling so hot on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, and I called in sick for my trip and feeling much better now. Thank you very much. And um, that's pretty much been it for me. No, we were supposed to have a meetup in uh, Dallas area, uh, Dallas, yeah, downtown Dallas. And we we're going to go to a smokehouse and all that kind of stuff. And so I do apologize to those folks who were looking forward to that. Uh, we had to cancel that. I'm assuming it was canceled. Maybe they got together anyway. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. We're all caught up. 
which is good. And with that, I think now it's time for us to talk about the coffee fund. No, wait, let's don't do that yet. Let's talk about an upcoming meetup uh, of the APG and airplane geeks and uh, aviation geeks in general, the innovations in flight at the Udvar-Hazy National Air and Space Museum up uh, next to the uh, Dulles International Airport Complex there in uh, Virginia near the D.C. area on the 16th of June. Again, planning on flying up with Mike in his Beechcraft Musketeer, and we're going to be there uh, for the event on Saturday and either leaving Saturday night or Sunday. Uh, that's kind of uh, up in the air right now. But uh, if you're going to be up there for the event, please uh, look for us at the National Air and Space Museum udvar Center on the 16th of June. And now, I think we can safely talk about the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, many of you already know this, but uh, the way that you can support the show financially is via the Coffee Fund. Join the Coffee Fund cadre. Many have, but we're waiting for you if you haven't. And we have a couple different ways for you to participate. One is called the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last show, we have Mazuts, Karim, and Jeff Moeller. They send in their recurring donations via the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And we have some folks participating as patrons. We have a couple of new patrons, new producers, uh, Connor Rafferty and Loic Marzin. Uh, looks like he may, or he or she, I'm not sure I'm, that name I'm not familiar with, but uh, they are in France based on the, uh, the email address. So thank you very much for that. I um, appreciate you joining the coffee fund cadre as a patron of the show and Stephen Devine took my advice from last week you know up your your uh, your donation and uh, he did he edited his donation and increased it from two to three dollars per episode so thank you very much Stephen for that and if you're interested in uh, learning more about the coffee fund head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee you'll be glad you did Stand by for news. So, what's up, Chuck? You're welcome. A Transavia flight was forced to make an emergency landing, allegedly due to a passenger's overwhelming stench. A Transavia flight to the Spanish island of Gran Canaria was forced to make... Now, it's not an emergency landing. It was a divert. Please, journalists, there's a difference between an emergency landing and a divert. 
Anyway, they had to divert to Portugal when several passengers reportedly became ill by the unbearable smell of an unwashed man on board. The male passenger allegedly smelled so bad that others on the flight became, began fainting and vomiting once the plane took off from Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands. One Belgian passenger said that the man smelled like he hadn't bathed in several weeks. Uh, it was like he hadn't washed himself for several weeks. Several passengers got sick and had to puke. According to the publication, uh, which uh, it would be what publication? Uh, I didn't write that down here. Let me see if I can find it. The publication, um, well, this is from the Fox News website. I'm not sure what publication. Oh, the Express. Um, that the uh, they tried to keep the man contained in the airplane bathroom while the pilot diverted the flight. <laughs> I wonder how that man felt about being forced in into the bathroom and detained in the bathroom. Anyway, the, uh, the plane landed in uh, Portugal where the man was removed from the Boeing 737 and placed on a bus by medical personnel. And uh, they uh, confirmed that the landing was due to medical reasons. So anyway, what do you think about that, Steph? Wouldn't that be a pleasant... Uh, mm. Yeah. Experience. Well, I had major deja vu when I saw this in the news folder. because I was like, I already read this article. But that reminded me that I was a guest on a different podcast this week where we also read oh, this Oh, that's right. Article. On the so, <laughs> wonderful Plain Talking UK, yes. PTUK. A little, a little uh, for, they talked about for this. For our friends over at Plain Talking UK. So yeah. if you don't listen to their show, you should. Anyway, uh, yeah, it makes this story kind of makes me queasy. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. Um, have you ever had a situation like this stuff where you've been on an airplane and somebody was uh, not uh, smelling very nice? You know, fortunately, not on an aircraft, but I will say that in my line of work, it does happen occasionally that there are folks around who don't smell great. And sometimes you end up having to be very close to them for some prolonged period mm. of time. I am, I have expertly honed my skills of mouth breathing. <laughs> Captain Nick, how about yourself? I don't know. And we're not I, talking about you, you yourself. With mouth breathing, at least when you breathe through your nose, you, you think, well, those little hairs are going to try and stop some grot getting in. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, if it was down to his personal hygiene and the, the way he lived his life, then that's obviously a major concern. But there's always the possibility. This is like when assuming people are drunk, there's always the possibility there might be a very uh, good medical reason for this. There are a number of medical conditions, uh, I believe, that can cause excessive body odor like um, thyroid gland problems and uh, I think while well, diabetes is quoted but I think that's a big thing I don't think I smell too badly um, and there are a few other conditions so th that's always uh, a thing to bear and put in the back of your mind this this man might spend his entire life doing his best to keep clean yet his health prevents him from um, not smelling so uh, that would be very difficult if on the other hand it's just the way he lives his life, then, yeah, I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for everyone. I, I wonder how long the flight was going to be from that point and and uh, how much uh, time they wasted in a diversion and who's going to pay for it. That's another question. 
All good questions. Yes. Um, Liz, our producer uh, in the chat room is saying, how did he get on the plane? I mean, how did he get past security and the gate agent and everybody else? Is it possible that he didn't smell that bad when he was in going through all those phases? No, I don't think about smell as a security issue. Yeah, I, was just saying, I don't think he's ever really been stopped at security for smelling like they haven't bathed in several weeks. But I, I agree with Nick 100%. There are some medical causes of, you know, um, bad body odor it they don't usually cause people always to smell like they're just unclean and unwashed though it's kind of a different odor in a lot of cases um i don't know that the average person off the street would really know the difference and if it's a if it's a particularly uh strong smell it might not matter which of the two it really is anyway for those that are um nearby but yeah, on one hand, you either feel a whole lot of sympathy for that person or somewhat less sympathy for the the person with the bad smell, because if they're, and there are some people out there, I've encountered them. They truly just do not bathe regularly. They don't care about personal hygiene. They may do things that cause them to smell worse. Additionally, on top of that, like heavy smoking, um, and it can be really difficult to be around those people for any length of time, especially in close proximity. And you want to try to be nice and charitable, but when you can tell that it's just a matter of how they've been living their life, as opposed to a, a definite medical condition, then it's it's tough. Yeah. Well, from the we'll move on to the next story from the Independent Business Journal or the Indiana Business Journal, IBJ.com, Republic. Airways Holdings plans to open an aviation school at Indianapolis International Airport that will be capable of producing hundreds of commercial pilots each year. The locally based airline announced on Thursday the school is expected to help Republic create 600 jobs in the state in the state by the end of 2028. At the event, let's see, Republic and the rest of the airline industry has been grappling with a pilot shortage issue for years. The regional carrier cited the shortage as one of the problems that drove it into Chapter 11 bankruptcy reorganization in 2016. Republic said it already hires nearly 600 commercial pilots annually, but that number is expected to grow by 30% over the next decade. And they're calling this the Lift Academy, Leadership in Flight Training uh, they are going to um, uh, start accepting uh, students, and all graduates of this program will be offered jobs as first officer pilots with their company, Republic. And in commercial aviation, the first officer is second in command on an aircraft to the captain. We all know that. Entry-level pilots at Republic are paid about $60,000 a year plus benefits. So uh, looks like, uh, as we've mentioned many times before on the show, with the uh, the the shortage, the looming uh, uh, catastrophe ahead, uh, the uh, airlines, some of the airlines are starting to do something about it, and looks like this is uh, Republic Airlines' answer to uh, start this uh, training school. Yeah, yeah, very topical, Jeff. Considering uh, our discussion on the very last uh, APG show uh, when. Um, you know, Dana and, uh, um, yeah, others were suggesting that, you know, oh, God, we're not, where are the flight instructors going to be to train all these people? Well, this looks like uh, someone stepping into the uh, breach there to uh, start filling that problem. 
assuming they can uh, recruit enough flight instructors, uh, this is a great step forward. Sorry, Steph, I tried. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I don't know if Jeff mentioned this because I had something else to attend to for a moment there, but the nice thing about at least this route, which Republic is um, working on, is that the cost is significantly less than what it looks like it is for a lot of other places at $65,000. Um, I don't know what all that includes. I don't think they they detail at all. So whether that's truly I all think, of the costs. I think you have not. to bring your own lunch. Yeah, probably. You know, and I I don't know. And your own airplane. Did it say in there? <laughs> did it say in there what the, you know, assuming you go through their program and you've, um, you've oh, secured a job, if there's any time of type of time commitment afterwards with the airline or doing other things before you, I don't know that it's said specifically, but say they a lot said of times they're, they're, time commitment. I, I don't know if it was in this article or not, but I think that it's kind of the same deal where you, let's see, uh, the training process usually, usually takes more than two years. Students typically take 12 months of classroom online and flight instruction to become a certified flight instructor. CFIs are paid to instruct other students. Uh, yeah, I think they're just talking about what normally. Oh, happens. the other method. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure on this. In this case, if they're required to stay uh, as uh, CFIs for ho however long it takes to get their get 1500 their hours. hours. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know all the details. Uh, we know some people that work for this company, though, and uh, they might they might know a little bit more about this program. Perhaps. So they can. Uh, There's actually another help. program similar to this uh, for veterans. It's called the Forces to Flyers program. I don't know if you've covered this yet, but the Department of Transportation announced it uh, sometime last fall. But they're targeting veterans. It's a similar concept where they have a few flight schools around the U.S. and they're trying to ease the transition to the airlines for veterans. So they take veterans that don't um, have a lot of flight experience, send them through these schools and try and flow them into a regional and, you know, ultimately a legacy character. But yeah, this, this pilot shortage is, is tough. So it's, it's nice to see that there's some initiatives to actually try and get people through the pipeline at a more affordable cost and make things a little bit more efficient. Yeah. So, uh, as, as I said, I think that this is something that we're going to see more of, uh, out of necessity and, uh, the costs um, right now, they're trying to do the best they can to pare down the cost. And I think, as we've also mentioned in the past, uh, I think at some point uh, the airlines are going to bear the the cost of training the people uh, that they need to replace all of us old guys like me and Nick who are retiring in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. So. And I think others will follow suit. So we'll see. Yep. I think you are correct. All right, moving on to this one. This is an interesting event that occurred just a few days ago. And let's see, where do I start? An American Airlines flight, flight uh, 1897, took off from San Antonio and uh, was headed toward Phoenix, Arizona. And in uh, south of uh, southern New Mexico, they encountered... Uh, a weather system, a frontal system with some pretty severe thunderstorms. And uh, we have a lot of information in this particular news item as far as uh, uh, looking at uh, the GOES satellite um, illustrations and uh, image, imagery and the flight path of the aircraft. But uh, let's just say, needless to say, they ended up getting a little bit too close to one of these supercells uh, that was spinning out from what I've heard anywhere from golf ball to baseball sized uh, hail. 
which is uh, really, Ouch. really nasty, especially if you're in an airplane traveling at, you know, uh, 300, 400 knots um, and uh, combine that with some heavy weight objects. Uh, it's just not a good combination. And it ended up uh, taking out the nose cone of the Airbus. Uh, I think it was a 319. Is that right? Yep. And uh, the uh, both windscreens. Now, we've seen this situation happen before, but this is probably the worst one I've seen as far as the damage done to these windscreens. I mean, you just I, I don't see how you could see a thing out the front two windscreens of the uh, Airbus 319. But we have some audio from the event and uh if, as usual as normal i've edited it so that it uh, doesn't take 20 minutes to play through so let me uh start that audio I'd like to mention, I'm going to pause it for a moment, that uh, it sounds a lot noisier in that cockpit than normal. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just the bad quality of the uh, radio re uh, transmission recording. Good eighteen ninety seven, Roger. Respect that. The hail has uh, has beat up our windshields pretty badly from that eighteen ninety seven. Where at this time uh, we don't have a whole lot of board to do it. Back in eighteen ninety seven, Roger. Copy off. In eighteen ninety seven, are there any injuries? That's what we're aware of. Section 1897,
1897, I'll pass first, you suck. 1897 is with you, and uh, go ahead. 1897, we just want to make sure you have your date, Alpha 4. Alpha 4, uh, but we are uh, going to ask them to tow us into the gate from this point, if that's okay with you. I think uh, we're all done with the equipment from that 1897. 1897, all right, we'll pass that on there. I'll see that aircraft's going to need to tow, they can only look up the left window, so we can go ahead and do that for them. Okay, wow. That, uh, again, that was all compressed and I cut out a lot of uh, uh, recording audio uh, from from that incident. But um, that must have been quite something when uh, they encountered the hail and must have been pretty violent uh, turbulence and quite a ride for the passengers in the back. But uh, the crew got it uh, safely on the ground. And uh, I, th- I thought it was like uh, kind of funny. Uh, that uh, when they finally got it on the ground, uh, they said, yeah, let them know that their company is looking for the tow bar. <laughs> oh, uh, we <laughs> don't know where everything. it is. I, I would imagine maybe the Airbus, the narrow or the, the baby bus doesn't get into El Paso. Perhaps some other aircraft do for um, for American. But um, anyway, um, quite an interesting. We have some pictures that you'll be able to see of this in the show notes. Uh, did a lot of damage to the airplane and um, and a lot of people, a lot of second guessing going on, um, you know, looking at, as I said, the uh, the satellite imagery and the and the radar uh, imagery and the flight path of the aircraft. And like, why did they fly into this thing? But I don't think the answer is quite a simple answer because the the kind of. Uh, imagery that uh, the meteorologists are looking at and the kind of imagery that we have inside of our cockpits is is different. We're we're using, you know, forward scanning 
radar and we don't have the benefit of seeing everything from a bird's eye view in real time. And uh, sometimes these things build very, very quickly. I'm not, I, again, I'm not go, I'm trying to defend uh, their flight path and the decision making uh, that uh, created this issue or could have created this issue, possibly. Uh, but just letting you know that things, uh, the, the technology that we have available to us in real time in these things can sometimes paint you a picture that is uh, not very accurate. And, uh, and it looks like they uh, ended up, uh, you know, getting surprised. But again, I don't know. I wasn't there. We're going to have to wait for more information uh, as the investigation continues. But what do you think, uh, Sean, uh, about this uh, incident? Yeah, yeah, Jeff. I'm on the uh, the baby bus, as you called it, for my my uh, my company, and I can definitely attest from firsthand experience. It's it's tough picking your way through those thunderstorms using the radar we have on the plane, and you know you're you're relying on reports from other aircraft, the, the weather from the the ground as well, and, and it can be tough because that that hail can travel great distances and and come and get you. And I also agree with your comment about the uh, the audio on that taping much noisier than usual. Usually when we fly up there, we just have a little Telex headset on with just one earpiece and it's, you can talk to the, the pilot next to you. So it's usually a very quiet uh, cockpit, but that's, that's a rough situation. And looking at those windscreens, I'm really, I'm really happy. Those guys got it back down on the deck safe. Yeah. Um, Steph or Nick, do you have any thing to say about? Not a whole this? lot extra. I mean, you know, I think the biggest question probably is just it, you know and i've only seen the the little snippets of the radar and again that's not what they were looking at so i don't know what that line of storms looked like how long it extended what the tops were on you know there's a lot of factors that go into that um like you all said i'd be more interested yeah. to see what the whole weather picture looked like around that area yeah, but it, it was dark and then yep. i think that uh you know there were probably some flights ahead of them that had made it through that area sure. without any issues and, and unfortunately that's one of those human factors things that we have to deal yeah, with yeah you like, kind of get well, down the garden path there right it's like well they made it through so can't be that bad let's just go on ahead right not right. always the case with weather although i did uh find interesting the uh, some of the tweets that were out there it always talks about follow the terrifying track of American Airlines flight. <laughs> they didn't sound, nothing about that was terrifying. Everyone was calm, cool, collected. They did what they were supposed to do when you find yourself in a bad situation like that and safe outcomes. Now, the second uh, tweet that I, uh, I made a screenshot of from uh, Stu Ostro, um, I believe uh, he is from the Weather Channel. I'm not sure though, um, where they show this three-dimensional view of the uh, the structure of the, the the cell and all that kind of stuff and i thought wow that would be really nice to have in my airplane <laughs> to see to see that hail core and everything else yeah, but we, we talk don't about have we that. talk about technology that may or may not be appearing in the future and everyone talks about technology and automation and things leading to single pilot operations or no pilots in the cockpit this will be much more useful and i think this is actually within the realm of possibility yeah i agree we all agree that are doing this for a living out there. But I think this is something um, that we actually, you know, give it another, I don't know how many years, but this is something that pilots will have available to them. Right. Nick, any the, comment? Uh, it's an interesting one because this and the plane tail will be coming on later have amazing parallels in that having put themselves in a dreadful situation by 
um, possibly uh, misreading or misinterpreting the radar, uh, possibly through um, you know trying to press on when they should really the better course of action was to try and go around the entire weather system. Um, they had an awful consequence, but having uh, suffered that problem, they did a fantastic job to get the aircraft back. So it's a bit like, you know, in one hand, you've got, well, was that the best decision? On the other hand, having received the damage, what brilliant flying. So, you know, if you just got to weigh one against the other in my uh, mind. Yes, very true. Very true. All right. Let's move on to D. This is an update on an event that occurred last March 2017. Um, so more than a year ago, a WestJet Boeing 737-800 was operating flight 2652 from Toronto, Lester B. Pearson International Airport, Canada, to Princess Juliana International Airport in St. Martin. And they were flying an approach and entered a significant rain shower shortly after crossing the missed approach point, waypoint, uh, Maypon. The crew initiated a missed approach point three nautical miles, a third of a mile from the runway threshold at an altitude of 40 feet, 12 meters above water. Once visibility improved, the crew conducted a second approach and landed without incident. Uh, findings now that were uh, the reason why we're talking about it is I guess they've come up with their final report on this incident uh, findings as to causes and contributing factors. Significant changes in visibility were not communicated to the crew, which allowed them to continue the approach when the visibility was below the minimum required to do so. The reduction in the pitch attitude led to an increase in speed, which resulted in a reduction in uh, engine thrust and a higher rate of descent than that required by the three degree angle of descent. In other words, uh, the, the nose dropped, the speed increased, and the descent rate increased, descent rate increased uh, much more steeply and they weren't aware of it. The occurrence of a moderate to heavy rain shower after the aircraft crossed the missed approach point led to a significant reduction in visibility. The low intensity setting of the runway lights and precision approach path indicator lights limited the visual references that were available to the crew to properly identify the runway. The features of a hotel located to the left of the runway, such as its color, shape, location, made it more conspicuous than the runway environment and led the crew to misidentify it as the runway. The reduced visibility and conspicuity of the runway environment diminished the crew's ability to detect that they had misidentified the runway. The lack of visual texture and other visual cues available over water contributed to the crew's inability to detect the aircraft's height above the water, and an increase in visual workload led to inadequate altitude monitoring, which reduced the crew's situational awareness. As a result, the crew did not notice that the aircraft had descended below the normal three-degree angle of descent to the runway threshold. Now, based on those uh, findings, um, I have one comment. You can know. You can always go around. So when they flew into the rain shower, I'm thinking to myself, I've lost visual cues of the runway. Uh, I think that uh, we're, I'm in a visual maneuver now. I don't have any 
guidance, approach guidance to help me find the runway, it is now time to execute the missed approach procedure, or at least the go around procedure and get the airplane away from the ground and away from the mountains. And let's do this again. Let's try this again. But that's just me. Maybe. Yeah, I agree. But I think, well, at least the way I read through this, they were saying that they actually thought they had the runway in sight still, but it was actually the hotel, which is kind of interesting. I have no idea what that hotel looks like. So that's it looks hard. like a runway, apparently. Apparently, you know, I can imagine if it's kind of long and rectangular and has a flat roof that's kind of grayish, maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I'm just benefit of the doubt there. Maybe. What, what do you think, Nick? Um, I'd, I'd like to have seen a, a contributing factor as a, a breakdown in crew coordination. So what was the pilot monitoring doing? If the pilot uh, flying has got his head out, trying to keep visual with the runway so he's not looking closely at his uh, instruments, that's really the pilot monitoring job. And if he sees something going awry, then he has to call it. But apart from that, they have an altitude call out unless it was broken on this airplane. They don't mention that. So you hear that that cadence of uh, altitude from the radar coming out, you know, uh, 50, 40, 30. Uh, and I'm going, uh, if you're not absolutely certain where the runway is when you're starting to hear those uh, heights being called out, what are you doing continuing with the approach? Um, they say they commenced the go around at 40 feet. The crew initiated a missed approach at 40 feet. Well, yeah, how close did they get to the yeah, water? Yeah, exactly. How close, close did they get to the water? I mean, this is this is just a hair's breadth from being an awful accident. Yeah. Hey, pause real quick. I think, Sean, do you have to leave? Yeah. Unfortunately, I ran uh, here right after class and I forgot my laptop charger. So I've got to got to uh, take off. But I just want to say thank you again for having me on the show. I enjoyed uh, all the discussion and hope to join you guys again sometime in the future thanks a lot sean for joining us uh, congratulations on the uh, upcoming graduation from the naval war college i know that must have been a, a lot of work for you and thanks so much for talking to us today about uh, the stratix and uh, your work to help uh, improve safety amongst all of us thank you again i'll talk to you soon bye sean thanks bye. Sean. take care goodbye bye sorry for the interruption right. there, but Oh, that's no. I thank you. I had not noticed uh, that he was trying to leave. But yeah, I yeah, I agree with everything Nick said just before that. And I yeah. was just thinking of Hotel California. You can <laughs> what is it? You can uh, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never you leave. Just can't, never leave. <laughs> you just can't. never leave. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like APG syndrome. Exactly. So. You know, I, in my personal experience, the, the scariest moments I've had on any kind of an approach have usually coincided with uh, heavy rain. Heavy rain is just a scary thing to get into because, you know, it, it, it really obscures your ability to see what you really need to see for the runway see. environment. And Everyone out there, for the most part, can probably understand that, too, just from being in a car in experiencing heavy rain if you're driving down the highway at highway speeds and drive into a very heavy rain shower all of a sudden your visibility goes to nothing it's worse than being in you know fog in a lot of cases so mm -hmm. couple that with being in an aircraft being over water where you don't have good um you know visual reference to the ground 
and yeah. Yeah, I can I can see how they got themselves into the situation. It's just as as Nick pointed out, you know, somebody needed to be uh, watching the store and uh, saying, hey, look at our altitude, look at our descent rate. Um, you know, do you have do you have the runway? If not, let's just this is not feeling right. I'm sure they both felt this is not feeling like a safe situation, but they hesitated uh, to initiate a go around until the very <laughs> looks like the very last moment that they could have to uh, safely, uh, you know, get themselves out of that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know about you, Jeff, but when I'm having trouble seeing where the aircraft is uh, on the glide slope and on the center line uh, as I'm approaching a runway, my scan actually starts to include the the ILS indicators uh, much more frequently than I would if I had a clear, nice visual day. So I'm wondering if the guy became fixated on what he thought was possibly a runway and, and just left that out of his scan because it's pretty soon, pretty easy to to see that glide path indicator start to drift up and you think to yourself, well, it can't be, that can't be the runway. This is not looking right. And as soon as you get that conflict of um, appreciation of the situation, then that's the time to throw it away. I've never flown there myself. I don't know if they have an ILS or if it maybe was just a localizer approach with oh, okay. uh, no yeah. precision Could've glide been. path. I don't know. Um, uh, that would be a, a good question. Um, it, it, absolutely. If you have precision approach guidance, both vertical and lateral, uh, even in a visual situation, you still have to keep that cross check going to uh, ensure that, you know, you keep it all nice and stable all the way down. Absolutely. Anyway, um, Here's a wow kind of incident um, that uh, just happened about a week ago, June 1st, um, in Orange County. An airplane taking off from the John Wayne Airport, uh, Kilo Sierra November Alpha, uh, Santa Ana, Orange County. has many, many names. Most people down there call it John Wayne. Um, It was a Cessna 172 Skyhawk, and this uh, pilot... Uh, had some apparent engine problems and had to uh, make a forced landing. Let's t- take a listen. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Uh, Cessna 7, 3, 7, 5, 3, 0, emergency landing. Cessna 5, 6, we do have help on the way. We do have help on the way, 5, 3, 0. Emergency landing. Roger, 536, put it down wherever you can. We have help on the way. Cessna 5, Charlie Sierra. Ground crash on. All right, everyone else, stand by. I want physical emergency vehicles come down. Dispatch one uh, ground, go ahead. Give me a repeat on the location where he is currently, or do you still have him on radar? I crash uh, once. Uh, there is. Last we heard was uh, just uh, that uh, aircraft was about five miles south of West of Seals. Just being the Huntington Beach Pier. It looks like it went down there off field. Copy to the Huntington Beach Pier. We have a, a we have a centurion there out there. They're looking for the aircraft right now. There, so they appear to be about five six miles southwest of the field. And again, the airfield have gone down. Crash will be coming. Thank you. I'm right, going to pause the uh, uh, the uh, audio right there. Uh, the aircraft did manage. It was a student pilot managed to land safely on a very, very busy road uh, in Huntington Beach, not too far from the water and the uh, Huntington Beach Pier. 
and uh, lots of uh, high intensity power lines, uh, lots of obstacles, cars, etc. on this uh, street. There's some video of uh, her uh, emergency landing and um, bounced a little bit, but otherwise a almost picture perfect landing. And it doesn't look like the airplane hit anything. Didn't she didn't get a scratch on it. And uh, but an interesting thing here, I know they, they said that it was a student pilot. And uh, but uh, here's a little bit more audio to kind of inform us uh, that this may have been the student's solo ride the first time flying by themselves and uh, the reason why i think that is because of this next uh, exchange you see that uh, instructor just start short of juliet there i do yes Possibly just hold there hey, do me a favor please uh, there's students just uh, landed off heel there so do me a favor just go on and pick up the instructor please you do me a favor and just say i'm gonna ask you if you can drop the instructor back at the uh, at the at the house uh, I can. Do we have any way of communicating to the instructor? Um, no. I stand by one there. I could flag her over here and have her. Do so you want me to get her in the airplane and take her back to OCFC? Um, yeah, that's what I'd like you to do there. But just, just stand by one. Let me see if I can raise up any wagon vehicles. So just hold there for now. Okay. We'll hold here. Looks like they're coming over to you right now. I see that. Yeah, I'm up. Go ahead. Coming back to Just let the instructor know that her students landed off field and they're safe. Oh, that sounds great. Just getting in now. Thanks for the info. Okay, now we're just going to make the 180. If you guys can make the 180 in Charlie there, last thing Lima. I could do that easy. Cool. Okay, we're going to make the 180 on Charlie and then the taxi to parking at Charlie Hotel Alpha there, telling five thing Lima. Okay, 180 and then uh, Charlie uh, to Alpha, then uh, back to parking. All right. So when you uh, learn to fly and it's time for you to do your solo flight, usually you'll go up with your instructor. You'll do a little bit of pattern work, you know, a couple touch and goes. And then the uh, instructor says, OK, pull over here to the side. I'm going to get out of the airplane. And this is always the 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 moment where you realize, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? What am I going to do? I'm going to be the only airplane or the only person, the only pilot in an airplane, and now everything is up to me. I don't have anybody to get me out of trouble if something goes wrong. And uh, so the instructor gets out, usually stands off to the side of a taxiway and watches as their student. And then, of course, the instructor is probably thinking, and I've been in this situation so many times in the Air Force as an instructor pilot, getting out of the jet and watching that jet taxi off without me in it with the student and hoping that you've done everything that you could possibly do to keep this student pilot safe and they won't end up going up there and killing themselves and watching them take off and do the pattern work and land and come back safely. It's always, I mean, it's always a adrenaline pumping heart beating hard kind of a moment for an instructor and for the student, of course. And uh, so when I heard that little bit of audio at the end, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this was, sounds to me like her initial solo and she killed it. She did a great job of getting that airplane on the ground. So I actually want to say just from um, some insider information, it was either her first or second solo, but it was, it was very early on in um, some of her flight training. It may have been her second. I was trying to confirm that just now because I thought that's what I read, but either way. Great job. Okay, I didn't see that in anything. No, 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 that's not on any, in any. uh, Oh, okay. Okay, that's it. So I've never seen a situation where 
the instructor would do that more than once, yeah. but maybe that's just my own experience. Yeah. So maybe it was the first, but for some reason I thought I read she was, it was just well, her regardless. Time. Yeah. Either uh, way. Obviously somebody with not a lot of, ex of experience and, uh, and being uh, in a situation where even a seasoned pilot might screw it up and she managed to keep the airplane flying uh, with the uh, lack of power and the engine. Now, some people had said, if you watch the video, you really have to watch the videos. There are several of them on YouTube. And we'll put this uh, story a link in the show notes. And then I believe in, in the story itself, there are some links to video. But uh, some some people were commenting, well, the uh, the propeller was still going around uh, when you know she came to a stop. And what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, even if the propeller, uh, the engine is still running, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's producing any significant um, power to keep the uh, airplane propelled for flight. Exactly. You can still have. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I yeah, you're quite right, uh, Steph. Um, I was just going to say, looking back at the flight path she must have had to uh, achieve to land on that bit of road, the number of obstacles, uh, particularly overhead wires and uh, pylons, they said that were incredible. Uh, I think it was a fine piece of flying to thread your way in between all those and get the damn thing down. I thought she did a damn good job. Just the number of power lines? Surrounding mm. that road yeah. is incredible. That's not easy to do. Yeah. Very lucky or very good. Hopefully both. <laughs> yeah. I think you need both in this case. Oh, for sure. No, I, I hope that hasn't put her off uh, continuing her career. No, one of the comments I saw from a group of pilots said, well, they should just give her her license right now. <laughs> much there you go. Pat in the back, send her home. Exactly. Yeah. Baptized by fire, right? You bet. Okay, so that was a, a story with a happy ending. And uh, our last one, not so much. This one involved a Cirrus SR-22, November 670 Sierra Romeo, on the 31st of May 2018 at Midland International Airport. Uh, the airplane took off on, I believe, runway 16. During the initial climb, the airplane was seen to enter a right descending turn. The on-scene examination of the records revealed no evidence of in-flight airframe, engine, or flight control malfunction or failure. Uh, there was a fire after the impact. The victims of the plane crash at Midland International Air and Spaceport have been identified as a 39-year-old Midland man and his 16-year-old son. And uh, the uh, report goes on to say that according to the FAA, the, uh, the father was issued a student pilot certificate on April 1st, 2013. And pilots with students' uh, pilot certificates are prohibited from carrying passengers. And uh, I guess this, uh, the reporter telegram uh, newspaper got a, an interview with Robert Katz, a Dallas-based flight instructor and plane crash expert. And he said that uh, pilots cannot take a plane anywhere without a flight instructor's endorsement in the student's logbook. Even if he owns his own airplane, he can't legally take it wherever he whenever he wants, he said in an inter interview. And he also said that uh, records indicate that uh, a third-class medical certificate was issued in April of 2013 when he got his student pilot certificate. And if the pilot were under 40 years old, he would not have been allowed to fly an aircraft because the medical certificate would have expired 60 months after it was issued in uh, April 30th, 2018. 
according to the federal government's electronic code of federal regulations concerning pilot certification. And uh, so it looks as far as all the information that we have available so far that um, this gentleman got his student pilot certificate and then didn't get his private certificate or any other advanced rating. And at some point, I guess they said, uh, looks like just very recently, January of this year, bought this uh, Cirrus and uh, was continuing to fly and uh, was flying passengers as well and wasn't supposed to be. And uh, one of the comments on this, uh, this is from uh, catherinesreport.com. One of the comments uh, from somebody who wanted to remain anonymous said, According to aviation database records show he got the plane in January 2018. He says, so a lapsed student pilot license and medical. Who knows what, if any, flying he's done since 2013. Then he buys himself a high-performance, slippery plane. Probably couldn't get familiarization flight sign-offs from a CFI, familiar with the type since he didn't have a license either. Flight Aware uh, website shows a few recent flights since the purchase, and a couple to... Ruidoso, New Mexico, where he was training horses and the rest local flights around Midland International. If all holds up, then student pilot with very low time and a high performance airplane that he wasn't cleared or trained to fly. Very, very sad, especially taking his son down with him. Uh, what do you think, Steph? I know you fly the the, uh, the Cirrus yeah. SR-22, and it's a little bit more demanding aircraft than your typical trainer. So, like the anonymous commenter said, it's it is a high considered a high performance aircraft. It's got a 310 horsepower engine in it, um, a little bit more than your typical um, single engine plane that you'd be flying during flight training if you're a student, like a Cessna 172, 150. Uh, Cherokee or Piper uh, Cherokee Archer, similar. Those usually have 160 or 180 horsepower engines. Anything over 200 horsepower is considered high performance. Um, And you do need a sign-off from a CFI to be able to fly a high-performance aircraft. There's some additional training that goes in. Um, You know, theoretically, is it that much different? No, but it's going to create a lot more, especially on the ground, left-hand turning tendencies. You need more rudder to compensate for that. And they fly faster and things happen faster in faster aircraft. Um, so the Cirrus that I fly, I rent. And before the uh, the FBO or the company that I, the flight school that I rent from would let me fly the Cirrus, they required me to have five hours with an instructor with me in the aircraft because the one that I fly in particular, and most of them actually have pretty um, sophisticated avionics, um, glass cockpit, the Garmin perspective uh, for Cirrus, being the most common. And then there's a couple other ones as well. And you just need to be familiar with that because that's where a lot of your primary information comes from for in terms of um, engine gauges and just everything else. So yeah, the fact that someone would go out and have a student pilot certificate and who knows what kind of training they'd actually had or accrued up until that point and an expired medical, so not even a, a current medical, and then be willing to take up family members is just completely irresponsible, um, in my opinion. You know, you look at the story before this where you had a student pilot without a lot of experience or, or training, presumably, who has a very good outcome because it 
you know, when you're in that training environment, you're actually talking about those things quite frequently and, and briefing what to do in the case of an emergency. And that's all fresh in her mind. You get away from that a little bit, even those of us who are current pilots, you know, you need to refresh all of those skills too, because if something does happen, you need to be able to act on it quickly. I think that, uh, you know, when we've, <laughs> I don't know exactly what, at what point, uh, you get to feel like you are like in control of everything as a pilot. And, you know, you're, I mean, I think the first few hours of flying airplanes, you're really nervous and you're very careful about everything. And then there's this period of time and it's anywhere from, I don't know, 100 to 500 hours or something. Maybe Steph, you've heard of this stat where you feel like that you're a pilot God and you could do anything. And that's usually when people get in trouble and they end up uh, not in this case, but uh, flying into, let's say you're flying an airplane and you have some hood time and you fly inadvertently into some weather and you think I can do that. And then you realize that, no, you can't do well, that. You know, they talk about those two buckets that everyone has, right? You have your bucket of experience and your bucket of luck and you start off and your bucket of luck is full and your bucket of experience is empty. And the goal is to make it through your flying career without exhausting the bucket of luck. So, yeah. you know, you need the, the more experience you accumulate, the better off you are dealing with those bad occurrences that accumulate. But you're absolutely right. You get to this period of time where you haven't really seen anything um, significant happen. So you start to get lulled into this sense of, well, you know, flying is safe, aircraft are safe. I've never had any problems before. It's never happened to me. You see, you know, things that very rarely happen to other people. And you can sit back and Monday morning quarterback those situations. But I'll tell you what, when you're the one in that situation, you better thought, have thought about what you might do or you better have the resources to be able to act on a situation you might not have thought of before. And how much does the um, the knowledge uh, that of knowing the knowledge of knowing <laughs> the knowledge that the airplane that you're flying is equipped with this uh, CAPS? Um, yeah, so there's some limitations on that. Um, and you can actually go and get training from Cirrus um, or one of their authorized centers. And a lot of people do and should if they're going to be flying these aircraft regularly. They call it Cirrus Transition Training, um, where they significantly cover the use of the CAPS system, the parachute system. Um, I was just looking through some data, and this is not from Cirrus. Oh, yeah, it's from the Cirrus Owners and Pilots Association. So there was a discussion going on about how low could you pull that? Um, so the data, I guess, shows that if it's been activated above a thousand feet, um, those are survivable events. No one has died in an, an instance where, at least from this data that I'm looking at right here, don't quote me 100% on that because I, I don't have all of the um, instances, but generally those are survivable events. So a few hundred feet, not enough altitude to, to survive. There's been, there's a couple listed here, 528 feet in a spin in Indianapolis in 2006 resulted in a fatality, less than 50 feet in Florida. That's, that doesn't sound good at all. Um, less than 200 feet after fuel exhaustion in Texas in 2011 resulted in a fatality. And then there's a couple other low altitude traffic pattern pulls that have happened in various places. One not too far from here, Waxhaw, North Carolina, just down the street in 2008, um, Spain, Florida, South Africa, all of those resulted in fatalities. So pulling it in the traffic pattern is not. Um, so so it's nice to have that system. It's nice to have that system. And depending on which Cirrus um, you're flying, because the the newer generations are a little bit different in terms of when you can pull that parachute. Um, so that's why you need that training. You need to know which type of, you know, which model aircraft you're flying. You need to know what those limitations are. 
but you have to understand that there is a, a an envelope yes. that that you can use it in, and uh, you're not going to be 100% covered uh, all the time. So Correct. you know you and just like uh, the uh, the the Cessna T37 uh, jet trainer that I flew, there was and I and don't quote me on this envelope, but it was something like you had to be at least. 50 feet above the ground in a certain speed. And I forgot what the speed is before uh, an attempt to eject because it didn't have a rocket seat. It was just a kind of a, an explosive charge that just popped you out of it uh, before you would be in a safe envelope to uh, eject from the aircraft. And, you know, you, you had to understand where, where that envelope was and uh, that, uh, you know, if you had a catastrophic catastrophic failure of your engines or whatever that uh, you, you would you know you would not attempt an ejection because you knew that there was no way you could safely do it and you just have to you know fly the airplane uh crash you know fly the airplane through the crash but um anyway very very sad situation uh, nick do you want to add anything at all no jeff i think you guys have covered it perfectly. okay all righty so be careful out there folks that's the uh, the bottom line right and, Absolutely. Uh, now it's time for the best part of the show. Your feedback. Captain. Incoming message. This from Dispatch Greg. Hey all, it's Dispatch Gray. Thought you would find this interesting and perhaps pass along on the show. In the country of Georgia, not the state, but the country of Georgia, they have anti-hail firing rockets. The government launches these rockets into the clouds. It releases some kind of a something and Chem- uh, to soften chemical? some chemicals. <laughs> yeah, uh, to soften the hail or eliminate it altogether. And and he included a, a link to the company and their product, the anti-hail system, and also a NOTAM, Notice to Airmen, issued by the Georgian government for aircraft to avoid these anti-hail rockets. <laughs> That's good advice. And then it has a, a delineated area that uh, is restricted, and it said anti-hail rocket firing, expect radar vectoring. And uh, I, I guess they're, they do this to try to protect um, areas where they have crops. And of course, the the uh, hail does uh, bad stuff to crops. So, they, so I'm just reading through their information about it. They have 85 launching points, one every 10 kilometers. That's a big area there. Good lord! Yeah, I'm wondering if they don't. They probably don't do it all at the same time. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a There's silver no. silver iodine reagent. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Oh, I, I thought it was lactose solution or syrup of figs or perhaps um, dulco. Something organic. One of those softeners. <laughs> Dulcolax. So, yeah. But, yeah. So it's not a laxative they fire up there. Uh, no. Okay. No, not that kind of softening. Oh, yeah. fair enough. I uh, don't think it has the same effect on ice as it does on our digestive systems uh is there any uh, scientific basis that shows that this is actually having an effect i mean i understand this there certain be. reaction between sorida but since they're the only country in the world that's doing it i'm surprised that if it actually works why other people aren't 
I don't know. I mean, are we sure that no, well, nobody else is doing I'm not it? Sure, a, yeah, a, I'm not sure that no one else is doing it. B, this is just a, this links directly to their website. So the um, scientific data here, if any, is perhaps uh, biased. Biased. Yeah. And three, oh, I had a third point. What was it? I don't remember. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Them's rockets, baby. That was your number three. Oh, three third, point. Um, you know, silver iodine. I don't know. I don't know anything about silver iodine or I, silver iodide. I'm sorry. Sorry, not iodine. Iodide. Um, I don't know what, if any types of health effects that has or. I don't know, but I'm, it, well, there was a, there was a number of um, trials done both in America and in Russia in the fifties to uh, create rain by seeding clouds with this stuff uh, because it, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a word for it for when you can draw air, um, moisture out of the air. Super cool. Uh, I mean, it coalesces water out of the air. Is this possibility it can do that? Oh, the word is right on the tip of my tongue. Yes, and yeah. someone in the chat room is going to help us out with it. Um, so yeah. anyway. Uh, count on it. <laughs> yeah. Hydroscopic is the word I was looking for. It's hydroscopic. Oh, that's not the one I was thinking of. Okay. So, uh, so but. Uh, no, no one pursued it because the effects were very hard to judge whether it was actually the stuff they were putting in the atmosphere or it would have occurred naturally. Uh, and it wasn't reliable. So they all went, no. So I'm assuming what they do is they seed the cloud and, and get it to rain before it gets to the point where it starts forming hail. Because once hail is formed, I'm trying to work out how on earth it would get rid of it. But I don't know. A big... Uh like blowtorch directed at the sky. I don't know. <laughs> the rocket, the rocket, the rocket. flames from yeah. the rockets. Yeah, that's what a big it. thunderstorm needs. A little more energy. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that. that was a great idea. I'll be patenting that shortly. <laughs> we're obviously, we're not scientists. We have no idea how this works. I'm not that uh, kind of scientist anyway. Or even if it does, but I guess it must, or why would they be spending all this money on it? Yeah. I've just worked out what it is they're firing to the clouds. It's snake oil. Ah, yeah. there you go. Uh, that's always scientifically proven. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Do you ever see snakes yeah, coming out of the sky? The price no. of one. If you act now. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. All right. That's enough. Thank you, Dispatch Greg, for allowing me to play my chemtrail song. By the way, that was Mike Wagner his, from his YouTube channel. He does all kinds of interesting YouTube videos, and apparently he's a pilot for some outfit. And uh, I'll put a link to his youtube channel in the show notes if you want to check out some of his work very very amusing okay uh two larry flying with the gear down captains and doctor remember the incident in which the aircraft was experiencing high fuel burn and numerous strange happenings only to discover that they were flying with the gear down the latest asrs callback that's the aviation safety reporting system i believe part of nasa and their newsletter callback uh, has a story straight from the horse's mouth. Well, from the first officer. It's on page two, titled, What's It All About? And then he gave us the link to the callback publication. And uh, we have it uh, here in our feedback file. And uh, the narrative goes like this. After departure, the CRJ-200 crew heard an unfamiliar noise and perceived a minor irregularity. 
The misunderstood problem and multiple classic threats spawned a domino chain of self-induced complications. After departure, we, as we accelerated through 200 knots, we both noticed a loud noise that we could attribute to airflow over an open panel on the aircraft. We agreed it was likely the headset and nose gear door switch panel. The captain called for the after takeoff checklist, and after completing the procedure, I read through the checklist silently and then called, after takeoff checklist complete. Around 8,000 feet MSL, the autopilot disconnected on its own. Captain re-engaged the autopilot, but within a minute, it disconnected again. Captain chose to hand-fly the aircraft. Passing through 10,000 feet, I toggled the no-smoking sign switch to signal our flight attendants. Uh, the switch did not chime. I tried the fastened seatbelt switch, which also did not chime. It was at this point we began to notice extremely diminished climb performance, and we were not able to accelerate past 260 to 270 knots. We knew something was wrong, but we couldn't figure out what. The captain asked me again uh, to begin. Uh, excuse me. The captain asked me to begin reviewing all of the system status pages to see if there were any other indications to give us a clue as to why we did not have any climb performance. We ban began calculating our fuel burn and discovered we were burning about 4,800 pounds per hour. With about 5,000 pounds of fuel and about 40 minutes of flight time remaining, we decided it was best to divert. Now, when the captain called for the gear down, I reached for the gear handle and noticed that it was down. We immediately realized our mistake. I'd never selected the gear, gear up on departure. I am not sure what to attribute this mistake to other than complacency and distractions. On departure, I do not recall reaching for the gear handle. I believe I became distracted by reaching for the speed mode button and nav button, and then we became distracted by the noise generated by the gear. We further became distracted by an autopilot that wouldn't stay engaged and having to hand fly the aircraft. And then we became fixated on only one problem while dealing with the other small, seemingly unassociated problems. The maximum gear extended speed was exceeded by approximately 10 to 20 knots. There was also a flap overspeed on final, and the thrust reversers were not armed for landing. I don't recall completing the landing checklist. <laughs> They're all discombobulated there. Uh, in the uh, final paragraph of this uh, particular article, it's one thing to miss a flow. It's another to read and verify a checklist and still miss an item. That is what the checklist is for. Additionally, once an issue is discovered in flight, you must also sit back and review even the most basic reasons why a problem is occurring. We failed to notice that our gear was down for the entire hour we were in flight. We were very focused on other possible issues and failed to sit back and evaluate the big picture. Now, every time I see something like this, Nick, I always think about the the uh, mnemonic that you have told us about or something to the effect of if you're in a situation you do something to kind of do what he said at the very end. Like you need to take a few steps back and look at the big picture and, and figure out what it is that's going on. You don't mean the one that they've introduced for new pilots, Fip T Doda is one of them. That's that's one way of assessing a problem. But um, no, the only mnemonic I can regularly remember is my friend Fred, Fred has hairy balls. <laughs> well, not sure Is that, that has anything to do. <laughs> that, that's the down. I, the I was pretty sure you had, I wouldn't have mentioned a mnemonic. <laughs> you asked for that. That's down, the downwind checks of a chipmunk. My uh, mixture fuel flaps, harness hood breaks. 
I thought there was a, maybe I'm mis- uh, uh, mis- uh, remembering uh, okay. that, but I thought, yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, basically, it's always a good thing. You don't always think of it at the time because you get fixated on it. And distractions are very dangerous. Uh, and, and if you do something out of order or something interrupts your flow, I mean, I've seen it so many times in my 30-something years of flying that uh, you can really throw everything out of whack. And it's uh, always good, especially in this situation where just one thing after another after another is just not working the way it's supposed to, to sit back and go, okay, what is it we have here? What is the problem? You know, and, and maybe at that point you realize, wait a minute, why is it so loud? Oh, the gear is still down. You know, it's, I, I've well, seen it's, it. I mean, I've done it in the uh, simulator yeah. where, you know, you're in an emergency situation and uh, you're flying around for 15, 20 minutes getting ready to, and then you go to the reach for the gear handle and guess what? It's been down the whole time. You never put it up. Yep. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, I see it most often where you're doing the same thing over and over and over on a regular basis, because in your mind, it becomes harder and harder to separate individual events sometimes. And it happens to me. It happens to me in the line of work I do. I do procedures that are repetitive and the same thing happens over and over and over again. And one starts to blend into another a little bit. If, and if you're not careful, that's where things do get missed like this because your mind goes, no, of course you did that. You always put the gear up. Well, how would you ever miss that? And you can even reread through that same checklist and probably even look and or touch the gear handle, have it be down and your brain goes, I did that. And without even giving it another thought, you, you move right on from it. Um, the yeah. instance I'm thinking about the other day, we do these pre-procedural timeouts where um, a nurse or assistant reads out what we're doing for the patient that's in the room and the side that we're working on and everything else. And I listened to her do it. And I said, I agreed. And then before the procedure started, I asked her, I said, did we, did we do the pre-procedural timeout? And she goes, yes, we did. I was like, are you really sure that we did? Because I can't, I remember doing it for multiple other patients during that day, but for that specific one, I just could not, you know, like wasn't there in my memory anymore for some reason. So I think it's always a good idea to take a step back, double, triple check everything. Even though they reassured me, we read everything out. I took a look at everything again, just to make sure that I knew exactly what was going on. And it never hurts to, especially in situations like this, where there's stuff going on, but it's not anything that's, an overt emergency, take a minute, pull yourself back a little bit, look at that whole big picture. Uh, here's another thing. I, I, I don't think, I think that's very good stuff, by the way. I think it's exactly the right advice. But uh, I don't know of many uh, aircraft that have a silent after takeoff uh, checklist. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask about that. Challenge and response. What's yours, Jeff? Um, it is mostly. <laughs> Well, here's the question. If it's already been, so I guess there's two ways to look at that. If it's already been done and it was read out with challenge and response and done, if you are asked to review it, does that still call for, and I mean, I guess maybe that's company dependent, or if you're going to read through a checklist, I think good practice is to read it out and have a kind of challenge response. Our, our after takeoff checklist is pretty much a silent checklist and you just give you go through and then you announce that the after takeoff checklist is complete oh okay now it's only one of very few that are like that i mean i i'm trying to think of all the other checklists that we do that we 
that we actually go through uh, most of the, uh, there are a couple items in all of our checklists that are silent or only like the first officer is the only one doing it. Um, but um, most of the checklists are, are uh, called out uh, verbally so you can hear each step was accomplished. And then sometimes, you know, uh, both pilots have to respond to the challenge. Uh, but uh, the after takeoff checklist, if I, now I'm, you know, like thinking, well, wait a minute, let me think. Because we do this so many times. I'm thinking, well, See, I'm pretty sure it was. You do it so many times, it becomes yeah, such a part I mean, of And this happens, done, in, this happens in any profession, I guarantee you. If you're doing something that is repetitive that you do on a regular basis, whether it's multiple times a day or even just once a day, every single day, it becomes so routine that your your brain can tell you you've done things that you may not have done or vice versa even. You know, you you have already done it and you go, oh, I didn't do that this time around. And you go back to do it. Yeah. And it's already done. This occasionally happens, you know, you'll you'll complete a checklist and then you'll say, OK, let's do the approach checklist. And then there's like this awkward pause. silence. Yeah. And the, we just, oh, we, we already did, did it, that. didn't we? Yeah, we we just did that. Oh, yeah. yeah I remember now. <laughs> anyway um but something to be aware of you know those are those are human factors things that we can all fall into and amar had a nice uh mnemonic in the chat room for uh his was dodar do i don't know how you would pronounce it d-o-d-a-r diagnose options decide act review yeah that was the one i was mentioning we have a few extra actions on there so we call ours uh, i think it's fit Doda, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's the way pilots are uh, new pilots are being trained to uh, make sure that when they approach an emergency situation, um, they uh, step through each action and then go back and review and see that if they've done things correctly. Uh, I'm not certain they would have thought themselves in an emergency situation. They were just trying to diagnose. A problem. So I don't know whether they'd have thought to go there and whether it would have revealed the the um, the problem anyway. But had he performed the after takeoff checklist? Yeah, that would have worked properly <laughs> without <laughs> assuming that he did everything on that checklist. It's really an easy thing to do sometimes. I mean, you really have to kind of sometimes just force yourself to go through each one of those items, even though, you know, you've done, you know, you've done your flow and, uh, and you're just double checking, you've done everything. Um, you know, then all of a sudden you're going through 10,000 feet. And for some reason, the airplane won't accelerate above 280 knots. And you're going, what's wrong with this airplane? Well, there's nothing wrong with the airplane. The airplane's doing what it's supposed to do because you still have the slats out. You know, you'll have a situation where you're taking off, let's say, from Pensacola. And you don't want to uh, uh, you want to make sure that you have a, a really nice tight turn rate to uh, kind of thread yourself through these um, working areas that all the military have down there. And, uh, you know, you so to do that. Uh, you you can you know leave the slats out. You have better turn. You have you know you can go all the way up to twenty five degrees, thirty degrees of turn uh, or bank. And uh, but when you do that, it's not normal that we do that. And we will occasionally do that. But it, because it's not normal, you forget that you still have the slats out, and or you can forget that you have the slats out, and then you, it just dawns on you when the air, airplane's not accelerating. You're going, oh, okay, yeah. Let me uh, retract those slats. And again, that's the the airplane protecting itself because you're not supposed to exceed 280 knots mm. uh, when the slats are extended. 
Um, but it happens to the best of us. Um, and usually it's something that's done because it's, it's not what you normally do or something happens that is a distraction and uh, distractions can be deadly. Number three, Nick, not you, Nick, but, uh, another Nick gave us uh, Nick Hewitt said following hearing the news the other day that an Aer Lingus a three thirty suffered a wing tip strike at San Francisco airport while being towed onto stand. It made me think of a few things. Is it a regular occurrence to have a, uh, have to be towed onto a stand? I first experienced this at JFK in February when the Norwegian 787 I was traveling on had to be towed onto the stand. What is the criteria or reasoning that would mean you'd have to be towed? Do you captains as captains have a say in this decision? Finally, in a situation such as this, Who's responsible for ensuring that the aircraft is clear of obstacles when being towed? You as pilots or the tug crew? As always, thanks for the great show. It's really, it's, it really is a highlight of my week. APG syndrome is an illness I am more than content to suffer from. Also, my congratulations to Dana on his recent promotion. Thank you, Nick Hewitt. Um, yeah, we were going to tackle this one last week, uh, but uh, I figured this was kind of timeless. You know, when when we're talking about uh, situations where we're being towed. Timeless. Uh, and, and I have a timely story for it, too. But go ahead with your story. Okay. Well, tell us about your timely story. I think right around the time we received this email, um, just as a passenger, I can't recall too many instances where I've been on an aircraft that's been towed into a gate. Um, but it did happen at Charlotte just the other week when I was coming home after Memorial Day. And the um, gates in the E-terminal, especially, I think it's gates E1 and E2 um, for some of the smaller regional aircraft, CRJ. I was on a CRJ 200, so definitely some smaller uh, jets going in there. Um, but the gates are kind of at a weird, awkward angle, and they're fairly close to one another to get everything kind of squished in there right up against the terminal and, you know, not part of the terminal building that doesn't have any jets, jet bridges connected to it. And we stopped short of the gate and the captain said, we're just waiting to be towed onto the gate here. So that was actually the first time that's ever happened to me. And I think I had just read this email too. So I'm very timely. It is not uh, unusual that some places like uh, one of the, a couple of the gates at JFK for us in terminal three required and the ones that were closest to the, uh, like the inside pocket because things were tight, uh, required tow in, uh, Los Angeles international. When we were operating out of terminal five, um, there were several gates that required that you stop and then they come out, connect the tug and tow you in. It's usually congestion. And also the fact that there might be a lot of, uh, ground equipment and, uh, uh, baggage carts and that kind of thing stored or nearby where they believe that the jet blast you know if you have to add a little bit of extra power to make a 90 degree turn into the gate you might end up blowing baggage carts and that kind of thing so that's usually something that we have as a note in our what we call at acme special pages for each airport that we fly into um so i have kind of the terminal diagram for charlotte here but you can see gates E1 and E2, and especially E2, which is the gate I think we were going into, is kind of sandwiched in there, and it's at kind of a strange angle from the way you approach it. So I'm sure that's part of why we had to be towed in there. 
as far as um, you know, in, as captains, do we have a say in the decision? No, if it's stipulated in our operations notes that those are towing gates, you know, we can't say, well, I'm going to go in anyway, <laughs> regardless. No, you don't do that. You follow the guidance from your company. Uh, now, I guess you could always, uh, and I, I've like this instance today, we were talking about earlier, the American Airlines 1897 flight going into the gate. Uh, they had a good reason not to go under power into the gate area because their visibility was extremely restricted because of the fact that their windows had been shattered by hail. And they said, no, we need to have a tug tow us into the gate because uh, that's just the safe thing to do. So, um, And when you're being towed in these operations, it is the tug crew's responsibility for ensuring that wingtips and th- you know parts of the airplane are clear of obstacles, not ours. Of course, if we see something that we think is not right or is you know something is about to go wrong, then of course we pipe up and and let them know. But it's not our responsibility. Would you agree with that, Nick? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think uh, we would also take some responsibility. If an obstacle was struck and it was in our uh, sight line. So I try not to get involved in paperwork and finishing up after flight details while we're being towed. Always make sure I've got my feet up on the brakes just in case the tug crew call for them because, uh, of course, uh, it's relatively common for that tow bar to break. And if you've got your head down, and you don't realize uh, the airplane is going to freewheel off into the distance. <laughs> you could end up clobbering something. So anywhere he's stopping it, then his view to be alert and have your feet up on the brakes, be ready to put them on. So uh, that's a few things. Uh, it's always a bit of a pain. We have a couple of destinations, uh, uh, like you say, Jeff, where running the engines uh, all the way into the uh, parking position would not be favorable. Uh, either an engine intake is very close to something or you're right, the jet blast might do some damage. Um, but uh, it's surprising how often uh, towed aircraft uh, are damaged. Uh, I, you know, I've had several uh, that I've been involved with, not necessarily that I've been um, on board, but that I've either been delayed or uh, I've been waiting to pick up an aircraft and then discovered that somebody hit something while it was being towed and I ruined my day, go back to the hotel or whatever. Um, and when you're uh, having an aircraft towed, uh, then the responsibility is really just the same as us when we're taxiing it. You've, you've got to be absolutely sure that the aircraft uh, is in the right place on the taxiway and that everything is clear. It's slightly easier even for the tug crew because they can turn around and look at the aircraft and see the wingtips themselves, whereas we uh, usually can't see our own wingtips. We're just kind of gauging uh, how close something is and whether we think uh, the wingtip will uh, clear it. And, of course, there's always that classic uh, sweat wing growth, where um, the distance uh, in, in a turn of your wingtips uh, uh, exceeds the uh, actual uh, wing span because of the um, geometry of the aircraft when it's in a turn. So all those factors come into it. So, um, yeah, tug pilots, uh, they, they do it a lot, and uh, I don't think they're the best paid people in the world, but they should all be qualified, and if they do their job carefully, there shouldn't be a problem, but they do seem to be a number of uh, incidents. Uh, um, I, our airline has had one at JFK. This is another. The JFK is a very tight airport, uh, and everyone has to be extra careful, but everyone's always trying to get things done as quickly as possible. The two don't aren't necessarily compatible. 
Yep. Yeah. When you're rushing around, um, sometimes you're, you're exposing yourself to extra risk and, uh, that's what she said. Yes. That's what she said. Ah, well, thank you, Nick. I hope that answered your question. Uh, good question, by the way. Well, of course, all of the questions that we get from our community are great. Yeah, but some are greater than others. That's right. That's Frick. not true. We love all <laughs> feedback equally. Please send us your feedback. Frick from South Africa. Well, here's an example of one that's no good. No, I'm just <laughs> Speaking of, <laughs> there's always exceptions. Who am I kidding? Uh, let's see. SA Express, I guess that's for South Africa, Express on Thursday. Uh, let's see. Well, I don't know how long ago he sent this in. May 24th. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, had its operating license suspended by the South African Civil Aviation Authority, the SACAA. The airline also had its aircraft maintenance organization approvals suspended as well as its certificates of airworthiness on nine of its 21 planes. The SACAA said the decision to revoke the permits came after it conducted an audit of the airline and its maintenance organization in the past several days. It, it uncovered severe cases of noncompliance that posed serious safety risks. So, uh, you know, it's good to know that the regulatory agencies are out there at least catching some of these things yes. before something terrible happens, you know? Yeah. And it looks like that's the case with this airline. Too, too often they're closing the stable door after the horse is bolted. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Rick, from uh, South Africa. Always good to hear from you. I think he sent in some other feedback, too. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. It's... Let's go ahead and get that one right now. We're going to skip to 11 since we're still talking about Frick. Lucky unless there's another 11. Frick out there. I don't think there's any. I just want to know what a corruption bombshell is. I mean, and how do you fire one? Mm, you need um, high-level clearance. To... <laughs> well, apparently cash-strapped South African Express was at the center of a corruption bombshell with Gupta-linked trillion. Another yeah, I, I read that sentence. I'm thinking I have no idea what any of that means. <laughs> so for, we'll just yep. not worry about <laughs> so, it too That's much. why I didn't highlight that one. I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to read that because I don't know what that means. <laughs> just thought it was a just great like corruption bombshell. <laughs> yeah. Typically, that's more associated, I think, with um, the political realm. But I guess businesses and corporations can. Yeah. Yeah. Moving I on. guess in li living in South Africa, you would have you're probably more tapped into uh, the goings on of the uh, local businesses and sure. corruption yeah. scandals and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Frick also sent this one in. Uh, this is a, a video uh, or a link to a video on Facebook. He says, hi there, Dr. Steph and captains, Jeff, Nick and Dana saw this on Facebook. And it is just a wow. Um, kind of thing. Um, thanks for all you do, Frick. And I just put a, um, a photo of, of the moment that this, uh, I can't, can you tell what kind of airplane this is stuff? It's a single engine. Mm, hold on, I'm going to play the aerobatic. video again just to, to see. I don't know. Oh, yes, I'm leaving. It. I really can't tell, but apparently it has a, uh, whole airplane parachute system, uh, on it. It's a bug it, smasher, isn't it? It it's is a, a yes, bug so smasher. Hold on. Bottle jumper. Tail but dragon. it's not a it's not a cirrus. It's a, no, it's an you wouldn't do this in a cirrus. No. <laughs> uh, well, maybe one of the well, well, not intentionally anyway. <laughs> so no, I mean it's pretty. It's shot from pretty far away for most of the video, so I can't. Yeah, I can't tell either. But it's a no. uh, it looks like a mid or low wing uh, single engine. Hold on, we've zoomed in here. I'm still propeller looking. airplane. 
and it's and it's it has the you know the smoke coming from it you know on purpose uh, so that you can see what it's doing up there all the aerobatic maneuvers and at some point through about three quarters of the way through this Facebook video the airplane is doing some kind of a maneuver and then it does a really fast yeah. snap roll because the wing <laughs> breaks. falls right I mean just a clean break it's just like pink yeah. And then almost immediately, yeah. the uh, the parachute is coming from the back of now the that airplane. That is a great use of a parachute. Yes. Uh, yeah. I was so impressed because I thought this was going to be either one of those uh, trick flying stunts where he gets in on one half a wing or he was going to crash. I didn't expect the parachute. It was brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, it comes yeah. down so slowly, you know. It's, Although yes. I bet if you were in the airplane when it hit the ground, it probably didn't feel like it was going that slow. No, I mean, right. it's going to be it's going to be a jolt, but it really yeah. slightly uncomfortable attitude. I mean, completely vertically dozed down. You must be hanging on your straps. Can <laughs> they put a, a parachute in a pits? I don't I don't know what it was. What it aircraft it was. It doesn't look like a no. biplane. Oh, no, me, it's not. It's definitely not. Um, it's like a mono wing. What's the other one I'm thinking of, though? Oh, like a chipmunk or whatever those things are called uh, uh, or super, yeah not a, not a pits i misspoke there um oh well doesn't matter yeah i'm sure watch somebody in anyway. our audience will will watch, watch the video and go well that's a obviously we need a ga See, expert that's right well i okay. don't know about any of those <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big world out there you know that ga world is a my is ga uh, knowledge and expertise is limited to like four types of GA aircraft. Everything else is... Sorry. I think it's a Cessna 172. That's my expert uh, analysis. <laughs> An interesting low-wing Cessna 172. Yeah. That's, is that your Very, aviation journalist? Um, Very rare. Yes. I'm an expert. An aviation expert. Captain Jeff Nielsen. Ah, all right. Journalist uh, guide to aircraft identification. <laughs> yes. I have it in my pocket. Yeah. Uh, so again, thank you, Frick, for both of those feedback items. I uh, hope everything is going well for you in South Africa. I reckon it's uh, an extra. Oh, it might be an extra. I mean, like he already has an airplane and this was his yeah, extra? this was his extra one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good thing he has an extra. Yeah. I think that's what I was thinking. <laughs> he just broke this one. <laughs> um, Philip writes, uh, five, this would be a great story for the next show. Well, thank you, Philip, for thinking so. Uh, he's uh, Philip Davis from, is it Torquay, UK? Torquay. Torquay. Okay. Oh, Torquay. Um, Emphasis this on from the Seattle Times. Um, oh, this is a good, we were going to talk about this on the uh, last show. Diana Ray, I'm supposing that's the way you pronounce R-H-E-A, Diana Ray, Boeing's longest serving employee and an early female manager dies at 96. Wow. Talking about a long life. She loved working and loved Boeing. She combined those loves for 75 years, starting in 1942 as a 20-year-old clerk typist and retiring last year at 95. Along the way, she endured the death of a young son, raised a daughter as a single mother. In 1968, she became Boeing's first female manager in manufacturing engineering supervising a team of up to 40 people maintaining inventory records for an air for airplane parts by the end her work and her life were inextricable within weeks of her retirement mrs ms ray's health deteriorated and after a visit to the hospital she developed septic shock for just over a year her daughter Anne catherine ice cared for her 
Ms. Ray died peacefully Wednesday morning, age 96. And uh, I think her daughter, this is a quote from her daughter, she loved working. She simply felt it was helping her stay physically and mentally healthy and couldn't imagine not working. She felt she had a lot to offer in knowledge and expertise simply because of her benefit of working in the same place for decades. Uh, Ms. Ray became Boeing's longest serving employee in the later years of her work life. Boeing made accommodations to allow her to keep working. There's a photo here in the article. And I'll put, you know, again, as you know, always these things are linked in the show notes. Uh, this one will definitely be linked so you can read the entire thing. I won't read the whole thing for you. Uh, but uh, there's a picture here in the Boeing plant taken on, in Seattle, plant number two, on May 14th, 1944. And there, this is the 5,000th Boeing B-17 being rolled out. And there's a little blue circle around the, um, uh, her face in the, in the photo. So that shows her uh, there uh, in 1944 amongst this huge crowd of people uh, gathered around and even under the wings of this B-17 in the uh, Boeing plant. And uh, let's see, she was granted her own indoor parking space at the 737 Final Assembly Plant in Renton, where she parked her Ford Taurus with the license plate Love Jets in a frame that read Lady Diana Boeing Aircraft Company. Anyway, what a great story. There's some other photos of her in her latter years and uh, uh, and some photos of her when she was a, a young woman, a very beautiful lady. And uh, again, talking about dedication and of course, you know, we hear these kind of stories all the time where people, as soon as they retire and they don't have a job anymore, they just kind of dwindle away and, and uh, move on to their next, their next life. Yeah. But great, great story. Great career. Yeah. It is. What a lovely lady. And uh, nothing, nothing derogatory. Uh, next, certainly not. No, okay. no, not when you see someone like that whose heart was so um, connected with a company. You could just have to admire her. Yep. Moving on, number six. This is from CG Guy. Hope all is well. I greatly appreciate the feedback received on my question a few weeks back. It was very helpful. Uh, switching gears slightly, we had discussed the Piper Arrow crash in April on an episode a few weeks back. Below is a link to an NTSB report detailing the metal fatigue found on the wing of the aircraft. And this is from uh, AOPA.org, uh, their uh, website. And again, uh, the article uh, title, NTSB finds metal fatigue in Piper wing. Uh, NTSB released an investigation update May 15th detailing the metal fatigue found in the wing of a Piper Arrow operated by Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University that crashed April 4th when the left wing separated shortly after takeoff. And they go on to detail the uh, uh, that they found some fatigue cracks. And there's a little schematic here showing exactly uh, the point on the spar where the I guess it was an, uh, a bolt hole that uh, uh, was the weak area and uh, led to the failure of the spar in the wing. And uh, yeah, so uh, we'll put a uh, this link in the show notes so you can read the entire accident report. But uh, wow, that uh, there was nothing these folks could do. They were just flying around in the pattern and all of a sudden, boom, wing pops off. They didn't have a whole airplane parachute system as the 
No, and even if they did, you know, going back to what we were reading about the the serious information earlier, they probably didn't have enough altitude to make good use of it if they were in the pattern doing pattern work. Yeah, that's true. So sad situation all around. Sad, sad situation. Seven. Captain Delinardo uh, writes in, I th- let's see, I suggest you talk about dangerous runways used for commercial aviation. I'm from Brazil, and in Brazil, we have Santos Dumont Airport. The runway 02 right, 20 left has only 4,341 feet um, of, of runway, and uh, they use it for Airbus 320 family and the 737 family. That uh, Now, what does that work out to be in meters, just for those of you who are not sure what 4,341 feet means. I mean, it's like Hold on. Um, nothing. Echo. What's 4,341 feet in meters? 4,341 feet is 1,323 meters. Did you hear that? 1,323 meters. I was going to say it was about 1,323 me- uh, meters. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, Almost just off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh so uh short very very short yes. to operate uh, those size no, no airliners short so um nick now the kind of flying that you're doing you know trans oceanic uh, long-haul flights i can't imagine that you go to many places where you see a runway that is less than maybe eight or nine thousand feet yeah i suppose uh um newark is one of the shortest uh that we regularly go into um we did have uh, a route to a little nigerian airport called port harcourt uh, for a while and that was a captain's only landing not just because it was a pretty awful runway and it also had a strange aspect because it was wider than the normal width of runway so uh, it always looked a bit odd when you were uh, lined up but mainly because of the facilities there uh, and the fact that we landed in the dawn and it was in a swamp and there was always low uh, scar- strata scudding around um, but no um, unless you're on a diversion going to somewhere a bit odd um, no, we uh, we always are on the safe side. We go to big international airports. There's rarely a problem. I don't really know of many. Um, for me and the kind of flying that I do, you know, almost 100% domestic flying, uh, the places that were, I don't know if you'd say dangerous, but challenging, let's say, uh, were again uh, because of short runways, and now they've uh, since then lengthened the uh, runway at uh, Washington National Airport. But it used to be just uh, just shy of well, just like six thousand some odd feet, and now it's about seven thousand or a little bit more. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, LaGuardia, uh, though all the runways there are within within one or two feet, about seven thousand feet long. Um, uh, the another runway that comes to mind, and we just talked about uh, pretty recently a, a bizjet, um, and it wasn't the first time that a bizjet or a, a bigger airplane slid off the runway. It was uh, to Tegucigalpa, 
in Honduras uh, is a not the longest runway in the world. It doesn't it's not a grooved runway or with a porous friction overlay. And of course, then you have like high terrain all over the place. A very and, interesting and, approach to that airport, kind of like yeah. hugging the terrain as you make that. It's kind of a downwind base final turn all in one right along the. Scares me just watching the videos. Yeah, the videos on are YouTube. Fun. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of uh, a lot of ones that um, out there that could qualify for the dangerous, most dangerous runways in use. Um, any others that kind of? I guess uh, Gibraltar is, uh, from what I've gathered from Captain Al and others, uh, is a is a very demanding runway airport to uh, to fly to. Not only because of the not a very long runway, terrain, but because of challenges. the terrain around it, and yeah, and the, the, the wind patterns. The road that goes the through what? the middle of the runway. Yeah, that that's kind of odd. Uh, Pip has talked about some. Uh, Pip does the uh, plane safety podcast. Um, has talked about some very challenging airports that they fly into in the Alps, I believe, the Swiss Alps. Yep, mountainous um, terrain for sure. Yeah, uh, I would imagine even here in the U.S. Uh, I've not been there myself, but there are a couple of uh, mountain uh, ski resort areas like that, Aspen. Uh, Aspen, uh, that you're, you know, once you get to a certain point, you're committed, uh, because you, because of the terrain, uh, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of crazy, <laughs> crazy runways out there. I, I guess the, uh, the worst one I've landed on was in New Zealand. I wasn't flying the airplane. I was sitting beside the guy, but, uh, he had a, uh, a light aircraft and he was flying us out to a, a dive, uh, scuba diving spot. And uh, the runway was only a hundred feet or so long, way too short for uh, his Cessna. And um, the way he stopped was to put it down on this first bit, and then the runway ran up the side of a mountain. Uh, so, and then it got high enough for the airspeed, or well, the speed, to have dropped off. And then he had a little plateau dug out where he would taxi on and then spin it around and then taxi back down from this. But he basically used the side of the hill beside his house to stop the airplane. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some, definitely some bush uh, airports like that when you're doing some bush flying. And then what's the one in France? Courcheval, which is, has the crazy grade on it. So you land uphill and take off downhill. Yeah, yeah. I've seen pictures of that. In it's the middle of the mountains, yeah. Um, Steph, you've mentioned a, a runway that, uh, there's a good barbecue restaurant. Yeah, BQ1 here. You guys will have to come with me there. And it's not so much, so the runway itself is 2,500 or so feet long, which is plenty fine for a Cessna 172. Um, the width is 36 feet. So it's, mm. it gives you some interesting visual interesting. illusions when you, it looks tiny and it's surrounded Especially by a crosswind. <laughs> <laughs> it's surrounded by big pipes. Oh, really? So, like, how much clearance do your uh, wingtips yeah. have no, from you have the trees? Of, you have plenty of clearance, but it does make for some interesting wind patterns sometimes. Wow. I always think of that when I think of uh, challenging runways. Um, yeah. But yeah. When, I, when I trained, we used to have a runway at Aria Valley where they would have to stop the trains every time we made an approach because the railway line was right in the threshold. Hmm. Uh, I guess the only thing that I can think of that is somewhat like that is that sometimes flying into Boston Logan, they have uh, ships that are coming through that channel in the Boston Harbor uh, that you have higher minimums uh, because of the height of the ship, but it doesn't happen too often. Yeah, I've been I've been sent round for a ocean liner on that runway. 
There you go. Yeah. But at least the runways, most of them are quite long, so not too much of a challenge. Well, thank you, Captain Delinardo. Uh, maybe you can tell us about some more dangerous runways that uh, you are familiar with. And now is about be a good time for that uh, them their plane tales that we have every week, which is uh, one of the, if not the highlight, one of the highlights of the show. And this week's is an interesting one. So let's hear it from the old pilot. The old pilot's plane tales, the dead stick. On the Airline Pilot Guy show, we often get questions about health issues that some believe might prevent them from becoming an airline pilot. We also hear of common prejudices displayed by the travelling public that would make us believe that they wouldn't want to fly with a pilot who wasn't completely healthy in every way. So, when I hear about a story like today's plain tale that has inspired someone to press on and succeed with his wish to become a professional pilot, I feel inspired to tell it. My thanks to Tom from Pittsburgh, who told me about an airline pilot who could see with only one eye, who performed such remarkable feat of flying skill, it gave Tom the confidence to succeed in his career, despite having a similar condition. Well done, Tom, and thank you. It was the afternoon of May the 24th in 1988, and Tacker Flight 110 was inbound to New Orleans. The Salvadorian aircraft, a Boeing 737-300, was inbound from Belize, having originally got airborne from El Salvador earlier in the day. It was a quiet flight, with plenty of room for the 38 passengers who were on board. The crew of seven included a senior Czech pilot who was on the jump seat, observing the performance of the aircraft that they were in. The 737 was almost brand new. The 1505th Boeing 737 manufactured in January that year and was acquired by Takaroni four months later. It had been in service with the airline for only two weeks and had some way to go before it would amass the same hours as its pilots. Captain Carlos Dardando was only 29 years old, but he had already amassed over 13,000 flight hours. Almost 11,000 of these hours were as pilot in command. Earlier in his career, Dardando had lost the sight in one eye when he was struck by crossfire when on a short flight to El Salvador, which had, at the time, been engaged in civil war. However, this injury didn't stop his career, which had begun when he was a child. He came from a flying family, which started with his grandfather, and it was his father who taught a young Carlos to fly, gaining his private pilot's license at only 16. By the time he graduated from high school, he had completed a course in aerobatics, and he went to the United States to complete his professional pilot training. On returning to El Salvador in 1978, he started to work as a flight instructor and then as an aero-taxi pilot before being taken on by Tacker as a flight engineer on the Electra L188 freighter. 
He progressed into the pilot's seat, becoming the youngest captain in the company when he took command of his first Boeing 737. Beside him in the cockpit that day was First Officer Lopez, also very experienced with more than 12,000 hours. The flight from Belize had gone well, but there were thunderstorms in the New Orleans International Airport forecast, and during the descent from 35,000 feet, the 737's radar began to show indications of moderate rain, shown as green and yellow returns on their displays. Now, Taka had a bit of a reputation for having a slightly blasé attitude to bad weather. Another pilot, who jump-seated regularly with them, mentioned to one captain, At my airline, we would go around all those red returns in the radar. His response was to explode in laughter. I had to play along. Those gringos are a bunch of sissies, he said. Now, there is nothing to suggest that Captain Dardenna took any unnecessary risks that day, and certainly the problems that occurred to his aircraft's engines were also thought to be a design problem. But regardless, he did fly into a less than favourable area of weather. The accident report stated that the crew noted green and yellow returns on their weather radar with some isolated red cells left and right, of their intended path. However, radar returns can be misleading because of attenuation resulting from intervening heavy rain and the echo from a storm cell beyond might be completely masked. The commonly accepted advice is to avoid strong echoes by 10 miles below 20,000 feet and 20 miles above. As the 737 descended, it entered into cloud at around 30,000 feet and Lopez turned on the engine anti-ice and ignition systems. The anti-ice system gave protection, obviously from icing, and the continuous ignition system was supposed to immediately relight the engines should they suffer from any problems after ingesting rainwater. As they descended with the engines at idle, they started to pass in between the thunderstorms when they encountered heavy rain, hail and turbulence. Conditions worsened until, as they passed 16,500 feet, the unthinkable happened. Both engines flamed out. Flight 110 had just become a 40-ton glider. A jet engine is, in reality, a pretty simple device. The blades at the front of the engine compress air that is then passed into a series of chambers where fuel is added and ignited. The resulting expansion that departs the rear of the engine provides the motive power and along the way the hot burnt air turns turbines that, through shafts, drive the compressors in the front. The burning fuel-air mix within the combustor is usually self-sustaining, but throw enough water down the intake of an engine and it is possible to extinguish the flame and put the engine out of operation. If the amount of water is sufficient, even if the igniters are put on continuously, the engine won't relight until the aircraft reaches clear conditions. And so it was with Flight 110. 
Captain Dardano and his crew had done just about everything they could to prepare for the conditions they faced. Their passengers were strapped in, they had turned on the engine protection systems, and they had aimed into an apparently clear area between the thunderstorms. When the engines failed, they immediately started the auxiliary power unit so that they could regain electrical power, and they attempted to restart the engines by windmilling them, but they refused to cooperate and remained dead. In the New Orleans Air Traffic Control Center, the controller working the east side was heard to say, understand both engines? Other controllers ran over to see what was going on and help out. We have a dead stick Boeing 737 40 miles east of the field in IFR weather. The controller was offering the tacker crew a Navy base about 10 miles away. One of the controllers called the Navy Tower and told them to change to runway 22 for an emergency arrival. The tower supervisor balked, but after receiving an F-bomb, he agreed. The trouble was that another large area of thunderstorms was building between Taka 110 and the airport, so the next choice was going to be New Orleans Lakefront Airport. It was about 13 miles west of the flight. They had already called Lakefront Tower and told them to suspend operations for an incoming emergency. Once again, the weather was going to be a problem, and then the flight crew reported that they wouldn't be able to make it. In the cockpit, the crew were working hard to get the engines relit. They had given up on windmill starts and were using the auxiliary power unit to start the CFM-56 engines, currently sitting uselessly beneath the wings. For a moment, they thought everything was going to be fine as both engines lit up, but when Carlo Dardando advanced the throttles, the engines refused to accelerate. However, the engine temperatures rose until they exceeded limits and had to be throttled back again. That's when the controller offered up the possibility of landing on Interstate 10. New Orleans is surrounded by swamps, canals and various waterways filled with stumps, trees, snakes and alligators. There was not much solid land. There was, however, the interstate. Something the controllers knew that the pilots didn't was that by law, every five miles of interstate, there has to be a minimum of one mile of straight, unobstructed highway. They had called up the radar map showing the local roadways and were trying to see if they could identify a place to land. They all knew the local roads, interstates included. As they were discussing it, they heard the crews say, I don't believe we're going to be able to make it there, sir. We're at 2,000 feet and we're losing altitude. The only thing I do right now is make a 360 and I'll land over the water, sir. Captain Dardano rejected the interstate as he didn't think that he would reach, and besides, if it were full of cars, the carnage would be appalling should he land amongst them. He was running out of options when his controller came up with a final choice, Lake Pontchartrain. The lake is shallow and protected by a levee on the south shoreline, and the crew accepted that it might be their only safe option. 
The New Orleans controller called the Coast Guard station at the Navy base and they scrambled a flight of rescue helicopters. As the aircraft approached the lake, the control room went quiet. Lakefront Airport was giving the cloud base a 1600 and the radar track that they were all staring at was approaching that height. As it descended, they started to lose data and then the aircraft seemed to make a hard turn. They all thought it had stalled and spun in. They waited, but there wasn't even an emergency locator transmitter signal. Coming out of the cloud, Dardano was lining up his aircraft for a water ditching when his first officer spotted a grassy strip beside a levee on his side of the aircraft and he pointed it out to his captain. The levee was a big, strong wall of concrete designed to keep the water at bay, but on top was a fairly long, flat area that looked just big enough to accommodate the crippled 737. However, on one side there was the open water of a large canal and on the other a deep-water ditch. Unbeknown to anyone on board, the ground beside the levee was actually an old airfield. In the 40s, it was the site of the Michaud factory airfield that had produced parts for the Curtis Wright C-46 commando aircraft. By the 50s, the airfield was no longer depicted on maps, but with the start of the space race in the 60s, it became a facility for the design and development of the powerful Saturn booster rockets that would put man on the moon. The flat area of the facility that was once the busy airfield was generally intact, but the runway was no longer visible and there were buildings scattered around. The bank of the levee, however, looked a lot more inviting than the water. Calling for the gear, Captain Dardeno committed himself to the landing, but he realised he was too high to get onto the small strip of grass. He was going to overshoot. Thinking back to his days of flying light aircraft, he instinctively pushed the rudder hard and, dropping a wing, he side-slipped the aircraft to get rid of some height. When things looked better, he straightened up and positioned himself for the landing. All he had to do now was get over a high concrete wall and embankment that stood in his way. Without the advantage of binocular vision to help his depth perception, with skill that came from a combination of natural ability, good training and great instincts, Carlos Dardando lifted the nose to ease his aircraft over the obstacles and, clearing them only by a few feet, he resumed his approach to the grassy area he'd chosen. In the cabin... Sitting in his cabin jump seat was Louis Castella, a flight attendant. The landing was spectacular, he said in an interview. The plane landed so smoothly, there wasn't even a bit of bumping, a perfect landing. As they braked the machine to a halt on the flight deck, the pilots congratulated each other on a job well done. They had completed a forced landing without any apparent damage to the aircraft and all on board were safe and uninjured. Back in the New Orleans control room, everyone anxiously waited any news. 
The controller who had been working Taka 110 was blankly staring at his screen. Another had begun to quietly cry. Since Lakefront now had departing traffic, they were able to ask for a King Air that was getting airborne if they could remain at 1,500 feet below the cloud for a while to try and spot the 737. He was the first to see Taka 110 on the levee. They asked what it looked like and he replied, People are running like hell away from it. A controller recalled, I can't tell you how happy we all were. Captain Carlos Dando and his crew's actions showed me what the phrase heroic dedication really meant. I was 27 when this happened. I'd been an air traffic controller for about four years, radar certified for just over one year. From that day forward, my career would never be the same. The lessons I learned would serve me and aircraft in distress well until I retired. The 737 number November 75356 was given an engine change and in a remarkable story all of its own was then flown off the levee. It continued to provide many years of good service in the air for several airlines, and if you were a regular traveller with Southwest between 1995 and 2016, you might well have flown in it. Captain Dardando is still flying and regularly performs aerobatics at air shows throughout Central America. He remains a hero and an inspiration to all those who know his story. Finally, investigators determined that Flight 110 flew through a Level 4 thunderstorm, the worst being a Level 5, and that a double-engine flameout due to water ingestion occurred as a result of an encounter with very heavy rain and hail. A contributing cause was the inadequate design of the engine, and the FAA Water Ingestion Certification Standard, which did not reflect the waterfall rates that can be expected in moderate or higher intensity thunderstorms. CFM, the engine manufacturer, instated several modifications to overcome the deficiencies. Wow. As Dana would say, wow, it's amazing. That whole story, uh, the past, the physical limitations of the captain and the situation, the just sheer luck of having that levee on Lake Pontchartrain right there in front of him to to land upon. Oh, and, abs- uh, you know, you know oh, I was going to say, did you know that happened on my birthday? Oh, oh wow. I didn't. Your actual birthday? No, not my actual birthday, but just on my oh. birthday. A couple of years after I was born, several uh-huh. of you. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> like, so you uh, you're claiming something to do with us? No, Is nothing right? at all. Well, just you know the the good fortune of that levy on <laughs> Lake Pontchartrain. Ah, there. because we have good fortune around. that you were born. Yes. I see. Okay, it's just a good day. It's an auspicious day. So I I'm trying to recall. I, I think I remember at one time Miami Rick saying something about the fact that he knew. This captain and may have been a flight instructor of his at some point. I, I don't remember I the don't exact remember story. If he did or you don't not. remember that? Maybe I'm just, it's all in my head. Yeah. I don't know. 
I, I do want to say something though, Captain Nick. The you know you or to everybody listening, you can go and look up these things on uh, Wikipedia or watch the uh, Mayday or air crash investigation. Um, you know, productions covering these things. And I think that this was one of those that got. Yeah, uh, I believe least. they've done some documentaries on it. I mean, it, it is an incredible story. It, uh, but but I'm, I, what my point is that, you know, the way that you tell you have the gift of telling a story that just makes it sound just amazing. And uh, so I really we all appreciate. Oh, you're kind. Uh, I was lucky fact. to find um, the story of the uh, traffic controller. In fact, it was in um, this captain's, one of his relations, uh, a much younger relation. I think it was uh, the captain's uh, brother's uh, great grandson or son, one or the other, I was on Facebook. And uh, he was relating the story saying, oh, I didn't know my great uncle had done this fantastic thing. And uh, the air traffic controller that was in that control room answered him on Facebook and related what had happened uh, in the control room. And when you find a little gem like that, that, that adds the icing to the cake on a story like this, because now you see the story from two different points of view. And there are two different stories in there, both this controller and his concern uh, over what's happening to the aircraft and the fantastic job that the controllers did trying to find a way to get this aircraft safely on the ground. And then the relief afterwards when uh, they discovered that they'd all survived. And then the story of the captain himself trying to find, do this fantastically difficult piece of flying um, with his obvious uh, medical restrictions. I, I, it's a great story. And the fact that he knew how to hand fly an airplane. Those uh, skills come in handy. Did. He certainly did. That's why uh, we should uh, always practice. He's, uh, I, I've, I, I've looked at a few YouTube things. Now, I don't understand Spanish, but uh, he's there being interviewed at various air shows uh, quite recently. And so he's still doing his flight. I don't know if he's still an airline pilot, but he's certainly still doing a lot of aerobatic flying. So uh, he's obviously I'll have to look up those YouTube videos I'd be interested to watch. Mm. Yeah. Very, very uh, amazing story. And uh, thank you for telling it to us all right um eight quickly george um george nolly uh who is uh, not only supports our show financially as a coffee fund cadre member but he also has his own show a fantastic show called ready for takeoff podcast he's he writes uh captain jeff and crew another fantastic episode and captain nick's old pilot plane tales really hit it out of the park i've been made aware of the story and in fact there's a book written about it very high on the Amazon ratings and the name of the book, higher call incredible chivalry war. Of course, that's just the, uh, <laughs> what is the name of the book? It doesn't really say, I guess I could click on this link, but, um, do you remember the uh, story that he's talking about? Uh, yeah, Nick? this would be Charlie Brown, the uh, B-17 pilot. And, oh, that's uh, right. Stiegler, the ME-109 pilot that, uh, held back oh, yeah. from shooting him down when he saw, this appallingly crippled uh, B-17 trying to struggle its way out of Germany and get back to the UK. That story has touched a lot of people. Um, one, one of those that uh, will go down in history as uh, one of the best plane tales. Oh, absolutely. And, well, and the more people that know lovely stories like that and the wonderful end to it and the background behind those two pilots, I think the better because I think it's just a, a brilliant uh, piece of real life uh, bravery and um, uh, sacrifice and um, heartfelt uh, uh, respect from one pilot to another. 
Yes. If you want more information and to read the book, uh, the, the Amazon link that he's referring to, it goes to a book called A Higher Call, an incredible true story of combat and chivalry in the war-torn skies of World War II by Adam Makos, Makos and Larry Alexander. But either way, listen to the plain tales. Yeah, you get the Reader's Digest condensed version. <laughs> and perhaps better. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't, I have not read the book, so. And George continues regarding TWA 841. I interviewed, that was the uh, story about the uh, 727, the TWA flight that uh, they were, uh, the crew was accused of doing wrongdoing in uh, causing this crash or not, or near crash. It wasn't a crash. Uh, he says, I interviewed Emilio Corsetti in episode 182 of the Ready for Takeoff podcast, and he gives us a link there, which we'll have for you in our show notes. He's an excellent writer and has had terrible timing in his flying career. So I guess we're talking about Emilio Corsetti and the book Scapegoat. Um, I started reading. I've, I've been busy this past week, haven't had a chance to really get too deep into it yet, but I do plan on you know, finishing it up and uh, doing a review on the book and uh, talking about it more in the future. And we even have some feedback regarding that. So uh, thank you, uh, George, for that. And again, Ready for Takeoff podcast. We'll have a link to episode 182 where George interviewed Emilio Corsetti. Also, Emilio Corsetti uh, wrote a book that the, the way I found about um, his his work uh, was a book that he wrote, um, 35 Miles from Shore or something. I think that was the name of the book um, regarding the first uh, ditching of an airliner, uh, DC-9, out in the uh, Caribbean, I believe. Um, anyway, another great book I highly recommend. All right. Thank you, George, for uh, the feedback. And uh, let's yeah, I see. appreciate your kind comments, George. Very kind. And definitely check yes. out his podcast. Absolutely. Great podcast. Um, let's see. I have a lot of stuff uh, still in the feedback folder, and we're getting to that point in the show where we're getting close to wrapping it up, but I do want to uh, hit some more of these if I can. Um, Colonel Jeff uh, writes in, he said, uh, Cue the bad boys song. And uh, if I'd read my own notes, you I would have, have already had that. Up in smoke. Up in smoke. Is that what that is? No. He said, cue bad boys, unless you have the theme from Up in Smoke. Oh, I don't have the theme from Up in Smoke. I'm just going to have to do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> bad boys. Uh, Southwest plane bound for LAX figures makes emergency landing after a passenger smokes joint again again with the emergency landing they did not make an emergency landing oh, what is wrong with these people it's a marijuana it's just, emergency it's just trying to make money jeff not very well <laughs> i think it's just they don't understand the difference between a landing because that wasn't supposed to be where you were supposed to land I think and they understand perfectly they just want to sell newspapers Okay, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Southwest Airlines made a landing after reports that a passenger lit up a marijuana cigarette in a bathroom. Yeah, I could see. That. Oh, yeah, well, that's an emergency landing. Southwest says flight 1250 from San Francisco to Los Angeles, dude, was diverted Wednesday afternoon. The plane landed safely at San Jose Mineta 
International Airport, about 50 miles south of San Francisco. Southwest says the passenger accused of smoking was turned over to law enforcement. Smoking on an airplane is illegal. could lead to criminal charges. The remaining 32 passengers were high (laughs) uh, due to secondhand marijuana smoke. No, were placed on other aircraft to continue their trips. And they all said, yeah, dude. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going. Really, Jeff? Uh, Southwest flies a jet airliner, yeah? Uh, I mean, LA to San Fran is a hop, skip, and a jump up the coast. What the hell are you doing landing in airfield just 50 miles short of your dive of your diversion? No, they only got 50 miles away. They went from San Francisco. Oh, 50 miles away. Well, even so. still, it's it's a marijuana. Yeah, but I mean. It's not. There, there's anything more nefarious than that. Is he sitting there? and you. Exactly. Oh, but it was terrifying, Nick. Terrifying. terrifying. And the, oh, the fire alarm was going off. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it doesn't yeah. happen every day of the week. Uh, uh, I, funny, Richard I Adams. Know, somewhere. The remaining 32 passengers flew themselves to destination. <laughs> 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 All right. That's a good Thanks, one. Colonel Jeff, for letting us have some fun. Um, not as much fun as the dude smoking the marijuana cigarette, but you know. Yeah. I mean, couldn't they have just as easily arrested him in LA? You would think. Yeah. It's all That's California. I, yeah. Like yeah, they didn't leave the state. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, let's see. Continuing on number 12, Texas, Charlie. Uh, I know we talked about this, uh, in, in previous episodes, it's been a while, but, uh, the, the changed, um, hiring practices of the FAA for air traffic controllers, uh, Texas, Charlie writes, I normally try to keep my feedback lighthearted, but this video put a burr under my saddle. It just seems too insane to be true, but the wall street journal, among other news outlets seem to support the points made. Is this an issue within the industry, or is it a non-issue? Or is this story just a pile of horse apples? <laughs> so I guess that's something in Texas that, uh, I guess, would that be like a buffalo chip, a, a horse apple? <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, um, so I have a little bit of uh, audio from the video that he referenced. And again, uh, the FAA, the testing for qualified applicants to become air traffic controllers now includes a biological uh, questionnaire. And uh, that's where I'll leave it off. The FAA, without a vote, just scrapped the old hiring system and replaced it with a diversity-friendly version. Most people have no idea this happened. The FAA now requires many of its applicants to fill out what they call a biographical questionnaire before any other screening. Those who answer the questions in a way that diversity monitors don't like cannot be considered for hiring, no matter how much experience they have or how well they may do on the other portions of the testing. The biographical questionnaire is all important. So what is in this biographical questionnaire? Well, we can answer that question because we got a copy of it, and we also got information about how it is scored, and it's shocking. For example, One question asks test takers to name their worst grade in high school. The preferred answer for that is science. In other words, if you can't do science, the FAA is especially eager to hire you as an air traffic controller. You get 10 points for being bad at science, according to the scoring sheet. Another question asked about work history. According to the FAA, the best answer to that question is you haven't worked at all in the past three years. You get 10 points for not working. 
Apparently, unemployed people make the best air traffic controllers. This is demented, by the way, but it's real. So do applicants who played a lot of sports in high school. They're rewarded, too. By contrast, applicants who say they know a great deal about air traffic control get only five points. Trained pilots get two points. Once again, applicants who haven't worked at all, who have been unemployed for the past three years, get 10 points. Pilots, two points. This is insane, and it's dangerous. It's also indefensible. We asked the FAA's top spokesman why applicants for an air traffic control job would get more points for playing high school sports than for flying planes or knowing a lot about air traffic control. His response, quote, I'm trying to find that out as well. Well, not actually trying very hard, it turns out. We still haven't heard back with a real explanation. And of course, we won't because there isn't one other than shut up diversity. Oh, I love Fox News. Thanks, Fox News. <laughs> Well, but I mean, we covered the story, yeah, yeah, the same thing, this biological thing, and it was not Fox News. It exactly. Was, I mean, it doesn't whatever. It doesn't matter. I just like their delivery of the news. Yeah, but uh, the the fact that uh, you know, well, we the issue was not only the very very bad test, but also I think we talked about when we addressed this before the fact that people were actually encouraged to call other people and they would help them take the test <laughs> over the phone That's or like over the internet. Or so. Yeah, here, no, no, this is the answer you want to so, answer, this one. I'll just say, I, I may know someone <laughs> close to me coming up here very soon who may be applying for an air traffic control position in the U.S., so we will see how that goes, and I will have... Well, I hope this person some... doesn't have any experience and is bad in science and hasn't been working in a while. <laughs> Maybe two of the three. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Well, good. Then maybe this person no, will have a kidding. good chance. I, unfortunately, yeah. they're probably highly overqualified, according to that information. Yeah, that is it is. Liz says the whole thing uh, is bizarre. And I and I think everybody is going. Yeah. Huh? Really? Is in the is this a joke? Is this April 1st? It feels like it has to be a joke like that just doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. And apparently it seems that maybe some of the higher ups in the agency aren't aware of the fact that this has been going which on. Is, sounds which is the real problem yeah, my well, yeah. Uh, yeah i think so uh, the way i read it was that, that they still had all the other um interviews and checks on their ability and uh, the skills that they would require but this was just another layer so when the guy says it's dangerous it, it doesn't mean that just because you pass this diversity exam you're going to become an air traffic controller regardless of qualifications you're still going to jump the bar on all the other acceptance. Right. I mean, you still have to get through. So, so that's what I was kind of getting yeah. at with. No, but I mean, again, when we talked about this before, um, there was a, 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 an extremely high emphasis on the biographical questionnaire, right? almost to the exclusion of anything else. So, but I think what Nick's trying to say is that after the fact, then regardless of who gets picked, and we're not saying that there's not significant problems with that screening question, then they still have to successfully yeah. go through training and be. They still have to make it through the program. And yeah. so, is it dangerous? Eh, I think that's something. Selling well, that might be a little journalistic. That's, um, a, that, that's what I was getting at there with yeah. the journalism yeah. side of things. Right. However, right. Um, we're not saying that there aren't issues with yeah. that particular yeah. screen, screening questionnaire. But I mean, again, well, I don't want to dig it up, yeah. but uh, there were people that were uh, had gone through college degrees in air traffic control when we talked about this last year or the year before who were being 
ex, uh, removed from even consideration right. because well, I don't know why it just, they didn't, they weren't considered. I mean, they went specifically to get a college degree in, in learning how to be an air traffic and, controller. You know, in any other field, the stuff that you put time ridiculous. and effort into and show interest in is a huge plus, regardless of yeah. what your other qualifications are. If you can show that you've got enthusiasm for the subject, if you're interested in it, if it's been your lifelong career goal and you've done nothing else except for work towards this, that's a plus. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Um, probably be able to squeeze in maybe one more. Um, you know what? Let's end the show with some pleasantness Please. from our friend Tanya, uh, who sent us some audio feedback for the first time. She says, I'm very overdue for some feedback. So attached is a just under four minute audio feedback clip, mostly humorous. I don't think we've received anything from Tanya before. I know we've had her uh, audio of uh, uh, meetup, but uh, has she sent us any audio feedback before? I don't recall. Maybe she has, but it, regardless, here we go. Here's Tanya. Hello, fabulous APG crew and APG community. This is Tanya. Just have a very quick uh, audio feedback here. Hopefully very humorous. This is all about the comedy here. Uh, so I have a story or a little anecdote about my father who sadly passed away earlier this year. I promise this is going to be funny by the end. But when I was a little girl, maybe like, eight or nine years old, uh, he was the first person that was responsible for getting me on an airplane. He booked uh, like a tourist flight on a Piper Cub. And I went up and it was like, maybe, I don't know, it might not have been longer than 15 minutes or half an hour. But it was so much fun. And it was so great to to do that. And the funny part was when I got home and I like ran into the house and I said, Mom, Mom, I've just had my first fright. <laughs> yes, Freudian slip, but probably not because I did actually really love it. So that's the first anecdote. And then um, the other one was just recently. Now that I've been, you know, around you wonderful, beautiful people and uh, have gotten more education in terms of the lingo and what things mean. Uh, I got up out of bed the other day and like there was so much fog. It was like so thick. And I got up and looked out the window. I was like, ah, instrument conditions. Da -da -da. <laughs> so the final thing I'll leave you with uh, is a uh, clip from the No Agenda show from their 1000th episode. This is very amusing because Adam explains airspace to this co-host, John C. Dvorak. And the funny part of it is Adam is an aviator. He knows what these things mean, but they were kind of goofing around. And the funniest part is that John actually thought he was serious. So I'm tacking this on the end. Captain Jeff, I promise you won't get sued for this. Uh, so I'm just putting that on the end for another little extra laugh. And I hope to see every single one of you who are going to be at Innovations in Flight at Udvarhazi on the weekend of the 16th and 17th in Washington, D.C. I cannot wait. Thank you very much, Man Man Micah, for lighting the fire under my tuchus to uh, give me the push to get me out there. And I'm, now I'm just I'm so excited and I can't wait to see 
all that are going to be there. So cheers to you all. Have a great day or night or whatever time zone it is in your area of the world. Class G airspace is, I knew this part, is uncontrolled. It isn't charted, um, but it's not for. It's not named after general aviation. They just have numbers. It says a, that? Yeah, they have A, B, C, D, E, and then uh, E, a, a G. They don't have F, I don't think. A, B, C, D, E, G, and you don't think it stands for general aviation? No, because general aviation can fly in uh, in almost all airspace. Ah, okay. Uh, now I'm going to name and location for the $100 donors. Yeah. Class A is only for Airbus. Class B is only for Boeing. Class C is only for Cessnas. And Class E is for Experimental and G for General. Yeah, we fixed it. Airbus These guys and are Boeing <laughs> have their own areas? No, no of course not. I'm t- <laughs> of course not. Oh, you're just doing, oh, you're doing a little humor yeah. on the fly. Yeah, yeah, unscripted. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I like that. Now, everyone just stick to your own airspace and we'll be fine. There'll be no conflict. Yeah, all the Airbus uh, aircraft will fly around each other and all the Boeings will help in a big heap in the middle. (laughs) Ah, there it is. Had to to wait for the whole darn show for that to come out of you. Smoking (laughs) pile. Okay. Well, thank you, Tanya. It's always good to hear your voice and uh, look forward to seeing you at Udvarhazi. Um, yeah, yeah, not too long I'm from now. Trying to work out what a tuchus is. Yeah, Micah, I don't know. You should be careful. You can just uh, ask Micah. He'll tell you. Can kicking I? I people's mean, tuchuses. Not now on the show, but after the fact. It's like one of those little three-wheelers you get drive, driven around in in India. Uh, no, those are tuk-tuks. Mm, oh, really? Yeah. Okay, could be. Yeah. I think tuchus has something to do with uh, the body. Uh Family show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of our show. And uh, many of you are thinking, thank goodness for that. Yeah. Me and, too. Uh, <laughs> we do have a few, not too many, that we uh, didn't get to in today's uh, feedback. Ivor had a question or a comment about uh, center of gravity and uh paul writes to talk about uh the the new tiny tiny american airlines max 737 max lavatories hey you and, should try peeing behind a blanket on a alson toilet in the back of a hercules mm, i wouldn't know, recommend that when you pay for a ticket though for your flight you expect slightly more <laughs> yeah quit your whining yeah we'll, we'll get to that yeah okay uh, and, and much, much more. Some of your great feedback. If you want to send us some, uh, you can go to the, well, you can send it to a feedback at airlinepilotguy.com, or you could use the contact, uh, page on the website, airlinepilotguy.com, where you'll also find information about the crew, the, uh, community, uh, merchandise, coffee fund, APG live plane tales. It has its own page as well. You can actually subscribe to the plane tales podcast as a separate item. If you'd like, uh, much, much more over there at that, uh, website that, uh, we have for you. And, uh, we have, uh, devices, not devices. If you have a device like this one, I'm holding in my hand, my iPhone, we have apps for these things, uh, on the iOS App Store and Google Play Store if you have an Android and it's Airline Pilot Guy, the app. 
And uh, you can also uh, use that to send us feedback and uh, so much more. And uh, we're also on the social medias. The social medias. Yes. yes. That would be the Twitter. And you can find us at APG Crew. Find all of our individual contact information there for Twitter. And feel free to interact with us and the uh, larger aviation airline pilot guy community at large. Similarly, over on the Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And more interaction from community members, different uh, news articles get posted there, information about meetups occasionally, interaction with the crew. And I will hand it over to Hillel to tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, and uh, a big thanks again to our producer, Liz Piper, and thank you to all of you who listen, watch, subscribe, all that. We uh, couldn't do it without you, and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Goodbye, everybody. Good day.